Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, Kenna. All right, Kenna, today we're starting with me asking you, have you ever seen the movie Argo? Argo. Is that the one about the, like, hostage situation? It is. Yeah, it is. Uh, It's got Ben Affleck in it. I was thinking Ben Affleck, but I couldn't remember where it happened or the year. I just know that it's a hostage movie. Yeah, it's, um, you know, uh, a true story, right? Based on this group of six Americans who escaped the U.S. Embassy during the... uh, Iranian Revolution of 1979. Oh, yes. And weren't they, um, didn't they get out with, like, some, like, some, like, secret agent was posing as a film studio and they got them out by pretending to be cast member? I don't remember. Yes. No, that's totally it. So, basically, um, these six Americans were at the U.S. Embassy, uh, the Iranian Revolution. I'm trying to learn how to say Iran the right way because I grew up saying Iran and everybody on the internet is like, it's Iran. So now I'm realizing I don't, I didn't practice how to say Iranian. So that's difficult for me. But the Iranian Revolution of 1979 breaks out and they storm the U.S. Embassy and the six Americans who escape end up hiding out in a Canadian ambassador's house for like months in Iran. And there was this thing, you know, called the Iran hostage crisis that happened where 52 U.S. diplomats and students were held hostage during the revolution. And those six people that managed to escape the embassy before everyone else, um, you know, that's Argo's the movie about them trying to rescue these six people. So basically the CIA launches this plan to extract these six escaped Americans from the Canadian ambassador's home and get them back to the U.S., And this real-life CIA exfiltration specialist who led this mission, his name was Tony Mendez. And the plan that he came up with was, yeah, to pretend to be a movie crew, location scouting in Iran, then absorb the six Americans into the crew and all leave together. And this worked rather famously, but it wasn't made public until the CIA declassified documents about the escape in 1997. So in the movie Argo, they're like, yeah, we're going to make a fake science fiction film called Argo, hence the name. And I love science fiction and I love bad trashy action movies. So the movie Argo was just like really right up my alley. Like it's everything I enjoy from an entertainment perspective, you know? I also like Ben Affleck and I'm not going to apologize for that. <laughs> Unless he's a bad man and I don't know that. Then I guess I would apologize. All I know is the, the sad Ben Affleck memes. He does look very tragic and sad, like with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he just looks like in total despair. Or like there's the one with um, Jennifer Garner handing him like Burger King while he's in the backseat. And, you know, sometimes the memes are relatable. Yes, yes. Also, Jennifer Garner is uh, my boyfriend's celebrity crush. Oh. Yes, especially in Alias when she wears all the little punk outfits. <laughs> and then she also drives his, like, dream car in, in Alias. Wow. Yes, so he he's a big Jennifer Garner fan. And this morning he was running their compatibility in a romantic relationship on CoStar with each other. Him wow. and Jennifer Garner. Wait, so are they compatible? They're extremely compatible. Oh, no. Yes. So I, I have some stiff competition in the form of <laughs> Jennifer Garner, which is fine, which is fine. Um, but yeah, you know, in the movie Argo, they're 
pretending to be Canadian. They're trying to escape. There's this kind of, like, general idea in the movie that everyone in Iran hates Americans. And, like, if anybody found out that they were Americans, they'd be killed on sight. It's just very dangerous to be an American there. But nobody in the movie ever really talks about why. Hmm. Yeah, it's like, why did the Iranian Iranian hostage crisis even happen? Like, why did the revolution happen? Oh, they don't give any backstory? Not really. They do, like, a really brief overview in the beginning, but they don't really explain the hostility towards the American presence in a way that you fully understand, like, why these people were so pissed off, you know, and why they were, like, we're taking the U.S. embassy. Like, if anything, Iran is just kind of painted as being this, like, inherently violent and primitive nation full of bloodthirsty ghouls out to destroy any American on sight just because they hate our, like, super free red, white, and blue way of life. Like, that's kind of the vibe you get. I mean, yeah, growing up in, like, the 90s, that's, like, what was definitely, like, painted by the news. Right. For sure. They hate our way of life. They hate our freedom. But in reality, it's like, no, I think they hate our military and our government. Yeah. I think the average Iranian person isn't thinking much about the average American person. I mean, yeah, and the average American person isn't thinking much about other people. Exactly. Um, But yeah, the movie just totally bypassed the fact that the whole Iranian hostage crisis happened because of Americans. And it was just one part of this, like, huge, rich legacy of U.S. intervention in what was once, you know, a relatively democratic nation with sovereignty fighting imperialism from the West. So today, obviously, Iran is in the news, right? Because protests are happening there. Um, And to really understand the current situation in Iran as Americans, I think we have to, like, understand the role we played in the West of making Iran what it is today. So for today's episode topic, I thought it would be cool to do uh, U.S. intervention and imperialism in Iran. Wow. It's a big one. So what do you know about Iran? Do you know anything? Um... I know where it is on a map because my geography teacher in seventh grade was very scary. Oh, okay. <laughs> it shares like a, a border with Iraq and maybe Turkey. Is that accurate? Oh, gosh. Now I can't remember. Now that I, put, I want to say it shares a, definitely a border with Iraq. Yes. Uh... Why am I thinking Yemen? But that's prob- oh maybe yes that would make sense based on some things I've read. Um and possibly Kuwait. Oh gosh, my memory is so bad. No, that's okay. I'm really bad at geography. Like I'm the kind of person who can't drive without navigation on. And like before navigation, I would have to go on MapQuest and print out directions to anywhere I went. Like back in the early 2000s. So I think you're doing great. Um. So you know that Iran used to be referred to as Persia. Oh. Yeah, for like a long time. So I feel like once I started looking into the history of Iran, like I feel like to really understand like the state of mind, um, like by the time Americans got there, you you can't just start with like the first time Americans showed up there. Like you have to go back and really start at like the beginning of Iran because it has such like a very unique history of being totally fucked with by so many people, you know? And you have to really like get at the beginning of it to understand how by the time Americans showed up, the Iranian people were just like, oh my, these guys now, you know? And I think that's like really important to understanding, like, I don't know, just our role and like how it compounded upon like so much imperialism that came before us. So 
Starting out, I'm going to try to summarize the history of the region. And it's complicated, right? It's got a lot of different power structures to contend with. And I'm going to do my best to summarize what I found to be like key interesting points. But as always, if you want a more thorough and nuanced understanding, it's probably best to go straight to an Iranian historian as the source. But, you know, since the history of Iran is important, uh, I think when viewing it through the lens of our country, the United States, later intervention there, I'm going to summarize it a little as best I can so we can understand uh, the context of the region by the time the United States showed up. So originally the area we today call Iran was called Persia and communities were founded in Persia like really early, as early as 7200 BC. And by 550 BC, Persia was like this vast and powerful area controlled by Cyrus the Great, who founded the uh, Achaemenid Empire, I think is how it's pronounced. And that covered Central Asia, Mesopotamia, Anatolia, and Egypt. So in 330 BC, the Achaemenid Empire, I'm so bad at pronouncing things, fell to Alexander the Great, right, which was Greek guy. And in 312 BC, the Seleucid Empire replaced the Achaemenid Empire. And then in 247, that was replaced by the Parthian Empire. And then in 224, that was replaced with the uh, Sasanian Empire, I believe. Right, yes. And then eventually the Sasanian Empire fell in the year 651 to something referred to as the Muslim conquest of Persia under this new group coming in from the east. So as you can see, like right out of the gate, you just have kind of these empires like falling to one another and this really complicated rich history that emerges like by the time we even get to the year 600. And this is important in the year 600 because uh, what they call the Muslim conquest of Persia, which I don't even feel comfortable saying as an American because I feel like it's very like anti-Islamic or Islamophobic, you know, but I'm not sure. This could just be my like Western like bias against it where I'm like, oh, I don't want to say anything bad about anything Islamic or Muslim at all just because it's so beaten down our throats here. And, you know, we live in like the world of Christo fascism, right? So who are we to say? But whatever the case, at the very least, having people of a different religious and cultural background come into where you live and take over, that meant that a lot of cultural changes were going to happen where you were, right? So a lot of the locals, by the time you had people coming in, you know, from the east, they were really fighting back hard against these invading forces because they'd already seen for hundreds of years so much change in their region. And sometimes like whole cities would kill their new governors that were put in place by the invading army. But in the end, you know, the locals lost and the area was put under total control by their new rulers. And the new rulers implemented like a lot of their customs from their home when they took over. And one of those was, yeah, the religion of Islam. So lots of sources actually say that Islam came along with like a relative level of religious tolerance and pretty fair treatment to anyone who just accepted it pretty quickly and succumbed to the rule of these new people in charge. So as a result, the urban populations and city centers, they all converted to Islam pretty quickly in Persia. Um, but it was slower, you know, out in the countryside with farmers and peasants. And it wasn't until the 800s that the majority of the population in Persia became Muslim. So while this process was happening, um, it's sometimes called the Islamicization of Persia. And Islam became the new state religion there. And then in 696, Arabic became the official language of the courts. Although, you know, just normal people kept using Persian. And this is like a really important thing to note because there was always this kind of like cultural pushback or like, um, like a dichotomous, almost combative nature between, you know, the new colonizing force, right, uh, who spoke Arabic and were Islamic and the people who were there to begin with. And this is kind of something that struggles to be reconciled for centuries in the region. You know, there's like 
a lot of this pushback happening. There's traditional Persian culture that people are really fighting to maintain. And there's also sometimes both Arabic culture and Persian culture intermixing to form new customs in the region that end up being super important too. So throughout the 700s, 800s, 900s, you know, 1000s and into the 1100s, this like kind of series of dynasties in the region pop up and they like wax and wane in power and influence and some are super important and really powerful and some are just like a little bit more low key and smaller. And many had differing ideas about exactly how much of the original Persian culture the region should retain compared to the Arabic or Islamic culture. And this is really important to the history of the region because we see that culturally the area of Iran was able to hold on to a lot of its pre-Islamic roots and heritage and also shows the role that like national identity plays there. In a conquered nation, you know, people want to hold on to their heritage and their histories and that's kind of the case uh, with the area today, right? Their nationalism in Iran, it's not gonna be the same as the nationalism we think of here in the United States, right? Because we're a conquering imperial force. And our nationalism like exports and spreads our national identity to everybody abroad in this like really imperial way. However, if you have this like nationalism of a conquered people like in Iran, it feels relevant because we see that um, they've had to fight so much to retain their culture and that that actually plays into this whole spirit of revolution that goes through Iran up to today. So from the years like 1000 to 1400, we saw a lot of invading armies like continuing to sweep the region. We have a lot of political instability. We have Mongol conquests and Turkish armies and Turco-Mongolian rulers. And it seems just like everybody historically has always been fighting for control over this area that we used to call Persia. Then in 1501, Esmail uh, established the Safavid dynasty and uh, that following year made Shiite Islam the official religion of the state. And this kind of dynasty runs a really, really long time, like until 1736. But a whole lot of stuff happens in there in between. Like Ismail dies in 1524, one of his sons takes over, then he dies and then some other guy takes over. Then in 1556, we see Emperor Akbar take the throne. And he's like, you know what, Persian is now the administrative language of the empire, which is a pretty big deal given the history of the region, right? Because he's like, we're not doing the Arabic thing anymore. You know, he's battling for control with this other guy and then he loses certain regions to the other dude. It's like this whole thing. There's just always kind of this history of conflict where people are trying to have control of the area. And in 1560, Akbar also devised this whole new religion that combined elements of Islam and Hinduism together into this like broad, tolerant, divine religion, it's called. It's trying to like find a way to make peace and make sense of the region. And meanwhile, his political opponent is like, no, we're just gonna strengthen like Shiite Islam instead. Then by 1585, the Ottomans invaded Islam, uh, not Islam, the Ottomans invaded Persia, sorry. And this started this like back and forth that would go on for decades and like even centuries until a temporary treaty was first signed in 1612 and then an additional treaty in 1618. So in between those two treaties, something else happened too. There's just like so much that happens here. In 1616 to 1617, the English show up on the scene. So if you remember, they're coming into a region that's already extremely politically divided due to just its history and tensions are always high there because people are like who the fuck are you and what's going to happen right but they signed this commercial treaty there with the shah which is the title of the monarch in you know persia and it's basically like you know the equivalent of being a king in the western world and his name is shah abbas or abbas so the english are getting super heavily involved in commercial activity there this is really like the era of colonial expansion right because like when did when did Europeans come to the United States? What, 
or the Americas? Uh, six... 1600s, right? 1500s? Wait, isn't there 1492? 1492, yeah, exactly. So this is when they're kind of going everywhere. I had to remember the rhyme from school. Oh, yeah, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I don't... That's still and stuck in my head. a lot of Yeah, I wish it would not be the, the reason why I remember that date. I feel like, you know, you did remember, though, so at least you got something out of the terror of, you know, the false histories of the United States. So, yeah, this all checks out. This is when Europe is like, oh, my God, we're going to all these new places. We're doing uh, colonization super hardcore. We're, like, seizing all these resources for everybody. And they go to Persia, and they're like, you got a lot of shit we like here. So they sign this, you know, commercial treaty that's like, yeah, yeah, let us come in here and do business, basically. And they even go so far as to help Persian forces oust these, like, Portuguese armies that came into the region. They're like, no, 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 no. We don't want anybody competing with us here. And this is, like, super important because this is, like, the foundation of Western intervention in general in the region. And we'll see that this is, like, something that plays out over time. So Shah Abbas is, like, really doing business, not just with the English, like, with a lot of people. He's, like, taking back land from the Mughals and the Ottomans. He's signing commercial agreements also with the Dutch East India Company. He even issues this, like, royal export monopoly on silk. But when he dies, the Ottomans just kind of seize back a lot of land. And by 1639, there's this, like, new treaty that comes out that's like, look, okay, the Ottomans control the area we now think of as Iraq. And there's some relative peace with the Ottomans for a while once that happens. So, meanwhile, in the mid-1600s, Persia is having some conflict with the Europeans, which, like, who hasn't? The whole world has conflict with the Europeans, right? Basically, you know, Persia's fighting with the Dutch East India Company, which we all know is, like, a horrifying force of violent colonization. They're also fighting with the Portuguese, and the Dutch and the Portuguese, obviously, are there looking for resources and are heavily invested in commercial interests and, like, exploiting resources in the region and all this is relevant again because it sets the precedent for how the western world engages with iran going forward like stealing natural resources from them basically in 1664 a french trade mission is sent to persia and later that year the french east india company is established so by the 1700s we see afghans then occupying a large chunk of persia we see the russians coming in and we see ottomans coming in yet again and by 1724 the russo-ottoman accord divides uh, northwestern persia between the russians and the ottomans and the afghan occupation is still happening and that doesn't even come to a close until 1730. and then by 1732 the russians are abandoning rights to certain areas and by 1733 the ottoman occupation of persian territories comes to an end and things all kind of chill for a second but you can see you're just like oh my god there's like so many national vested interests in this area that it's just like constant and even though things kind of chill for a second by, like, Persian history, that only means, like, three years. Um, in 1736, the Safavid dynasty that started, like, way back in the 1500s, that finally comes to a close. And we see um, this new Shah, Nader, come to power. So as the Shah, Nader starts out seeming kind of mild. He's even like, look, maybe the Ottomans here can take on this milder form of Shiite Islam. You know, we can be really respectful of people. Things can kind of chill. But the longer he's in power, he gets, like, increasingly paranoid and harsh and even goes so far as to blind his own son out of suspicion that his son was trying to overthrow him. And eventually in 1747, he's assassinated. His nephew takes over because everybody's just like, okay, this is a little much. This guy is losing it. And in 1783, we see uh, Georgia severs, like, all ties with Persia and signs this treaty with Russia 
And all of a sudden, Russia and Persia are like pointing fingers at each other, like the Spider-Man meme, like, oh shit, what's gonna happen with us? And now you have that whole complicated dynamic. So the next year, the British government introduces legislation to bring East India Company under its total political control. And this is important, remember, because they have like a lot of involvement in Persia at the time through the East India Companies. So the British then end up just with this huge amount of interest in Persia as a result of this. In the year 1800, Sir John Malcolm, who's a representative of the East India Company, right, British, uh, concludes a commercial and political treaty with Persia. And in this treaty, Persia is not to make peace with the Afghans unless they renounce all designs on India, right? Some real capitalist trading political stuff. It's important, obviously, because of the interest of the East India Company in India. And by 1810, we see the first Persian students start to get sent to Europe by the crown prince. And the second Sir John Malcolm has this like mission to Persia that firmly establishes British influence. So by the 1800s, Britain's like, yeah, we're all in it, whatever you got going on over there. They got like, their hands super, super into it. And just two years later, a treaty of something called permanent friendship is signed between Persia and Britain. Uh, meanwhile, all this is happening, Persia is like at odds with Russia, right? There was like a war in 1813, a second war in 1826. They keep losing more and more and more Persian territory ends up in Russia. And by the mid 1800s, the relationship between Persia and even England starts to sour. And in 1856, we see the Anglo-Persian War over this town called Herat. Now, during this war, Persia is ruled over by the Kahar dynasty, who are trying to lay claim to the city of Herat. And Herat used to be a Persian city, but it declared itself independent and put itself under the protection of the British in India in alliance with like this nearby Afghan region. So you're just like, okay, the spider web of alliances and complications between Persia and literally like everywhere else in the world is just this really complex web. And in the end, the Persians withdrew from Herat and the British withdrew from Southern Persia. But England, of course, still had a vested interest in Persia from like an economic position. So in 1889, the Imperial Bank of Persia was founded. And this is like a key focal point of British interest there with the right to issue currency and also to exploit local mineral deposits of anything but gold or silver that was there. So again, colonization, commerce. The following year, uh, the Shah Nasser al-Din grants a British citizen, Major Gerald F. Talbot, the right to buy, sell, and manufacture tobacco throughout Persia for 50 years. And this forms something called the Imperial Tobacco Corporation of Persia. And this is like really um, this moment, I think, where people in the region are like, yeah, um, our rulers are just a bunch of rich guys with rich guy friends who are like selling us out to other countries to make a quick buck. So this is something also that's important, I think, when you think about like the history of this area, just how much these deals by the higher-ups with the deals from higher-ups of other countries like failed to consider the needs of the people who actually lived in the region. And the same year that this happens, inflation starts to like really hit Persia, creating widespread financial difficulty. The following year, this like leading cleric of a key uh, Persian city declared tobacco like prohibited. He's like, you know what? We don't do tobacco. Tobacco's gnarly. And he tells his followers like, you should go through all the bazaars and the markets and smash all of the water pipes. And this will be like our protest against this tobacco concession that was made to this British dude, Major Talbot, right? So it's like a political kind of thing. And we already see, you know, the local Persians, they're not happy with this special relationship that the Shah was granting to some British guy. And these tobacco tensions rise, leading to a national tobacco boycott. 
so by 1892, there started to be like full-blown bloody demonstrations in front of the royal palace, and the Shah is forced to cancel this tobacco concession, the special deal he made with the British guy, which means that Persia has to pay this huge sum of money as a form of compensation for breaking the contract. And in 1896, just four years after this, the Shah is assassinated. He's just like really not popular. People are just like, no, we don't like this guy. And a couple of years later, though, like the death of the Shah, we see doesn't really slow down the influence of Europe and in particular England in the region. Like in 1898, telegraph lines get set up by English and German firms linking Iran with India and the rest of Europe. And in 1901, um, something kind of major happens. So like similar to the tobacco concession, an oil concession is granted to a British citizen named William Knox Darcy. And this concession says that this guy's got access to the oil for 60 years. And by this time, everybody who lives there is like, this is kind of fucked up. So in 1905, there's this like growing resistance movement kind of starting. And it's called the Persian Constitutional Movement. And they're like, we need a constitution. We need some rights. We need to be protected. And in 1906, the Shah is like, okay, okay, fine. I'm going to form like a parliament, a national assembly. And on October 7th of that year, they opened and they ratified this new constitutional charter. So this is considered like a nonviolent kind of revolution that happens. Limited violence anyway. And in 1907, the Anglo-Russian Agreement is formed. And this designated that the north and south of Persia were spheres of influence for the Russians and the British, respectively, which meant that only central Persia was fully independent. So if we know anything about Persia up to this point, we know that this is not a great move in the eyes of the people, right? This is everything they hate. And this is why this growing nationalist movement has been forming there. And again, not nationalism like we think of it in the United States, right? Living in an imperial Western nation, but nationalist movement in the sense of like, why won't all these people just leave us the fuck alone? So in 1909, this other like really unpopular important thing happens, which is the Anglo-Persian Oil Company is founded. And that same year, one of the strongest members of the constitutionalist movement is assassinated. So this is just like, all right, shit's really hitting the fan. Um, the next year, this new leader calls for the formation of political factions with specific platforms within parliament there, being like, okay, we need a way for everybody to feel like their voices are heard because this is chaos, so we're going to have political parties. And in particular, two influential parties are formed. There's the Social Democrats, and then there's the Moderate Socialists. And the next year, in 1911, we see a lot more Western influence enter the scene. And the assembly approves of the use of Swedish police officers within Persia to quote unquote protect Persian roads, which is just weird. And also as Morgan Schuster, an American financial advisor, arrives in Persia with a 16 member team to oversee financial reforms there. So this is not great, right? So this American financial advisor assumes the position of treasurer general and the Social Democrats are really supporting him, but the Russians view him as a pro-British kind of agent, which spells trouble for them, right? Because if you remember, they have the whole Northern Persia under the sphere of their influence and the South is under the sphere of the British. So they're like, this American guy is not actually neutral. He's on the side of the British because the United States and England have a special relationship or whatever. So that same year, while all this is going on, the Tsarist pre-revolution Russia, right, the Tsar's Russia, sets this ultimatum for the expulsion of the American Schuster and his team. And the Social Democrats petition the parliament to reject the Russians' requests. So Russian forces are like, fuck it, we're invading Persia. So finally, in December of 1911, 
the parliament accepts the Russian ultimatum and just dissolves. That same year, a number of constitutionalist leaders are also executed by the Russians. So they're like in it. And in 1913, the Swedish head of police that ended up there to protect the roads, uh, Colonel Westdahl, announced the establishment of a whole new establishment of a whole new police administration in Persia, which he served as the chief of until 1923. So if you're keeping track, we got the Russians, we got the British, we got the Swedish for some reason, and then we have the central area that's kind of outside of the sphere of influence, just going like, wait, what the fuck is happening here? And that kind of brings us to 1914. Do you know what happens in 1914 globally? Uh, World War One. Yeah, yeah, it was World War One, and ha-ha. Persia. Persia's like. <laughs> I mean, not haha, World War One. Haha, oh, I knew this. Kenna thing. loves World War One. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Kenna, somebody's grandpa, just, who just watches the History Channel. All oh day my World God. <laughs> no, no, no. I get it. You, you guessed it. Wow, that was good. So, okay, World War I breaks out, and Persia's like, we're neutral. But the Russia and Britain are like, you're not neutral, you're not shit, you're us. You're whatever we say we are. Yeah. So they're like, no, we really want to be neutral. And they're like, nah, you can't declare anything. You're not strong enough. You're, like, basically a colonized land by us without calling it a colonized land. So while all of this is happening, this popular Persian leader starts trying to convince people there, like, you know what we should really do? We should get in with the Germans. We should get in with the pro-German political activity there to really stick it to the British and the Russians. So, like, we need a new ally, and that ally is going to be Germany. But in 1915, British forces come in, and they disarm these pro-German Persians. And also, this thing called the National Defense Committee is formed. And it's so popular that the third meeting of the parliament the national assembly has to dissolve early because more than half of its members just left to join the national defense committee which is like a militant kind of wing to defend persia meanwhile in 1916 we've got russian forces occupying areas of persia still we've got the british general sir percy skies coming in and setting up south persia rifles which is an organization aimed at curbing german influence and protecting persia from turkish invasion And we have the Ottomans back again. They come and go, occupying areas and threatening to advance on the capital. So the people here really just can't get a break. You know, this is like, what, we're only up to 1916? Wow. I know. It's a lot. It's a lot. This is why when I was reading about it, I was like, oh my God, like you can't even begin to understand how they feel about Americans until you know this is what they've been dealing with forever, right? It's like so wild. And while all of this is happening, this new other thing is formed called the Punishment Committee with the uh, goal of assassinating leaders or journalists or whoever that they think are actually just foreign agents. They're like, we got so many people are in here. We got to figure out who's a foreign agent. If we think you're a foreign agent, we're taking you out because we can't deal with this anymore. So Persia come 1917 is basically being pulled in all these different directions by all these different countries, the British, the Russians, the Ottomans. But then in 1917, something else major happens. Do you know what it is, Kenna? 1917. Uh, is that the Russian Revolution? It is. It is the Russian Revolution. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My high school history teacher would be so proud of me. He would so also proud. be very proud that I did not chew tobacco. That oh, was that's right. That was the teacher with the anti-chewing tobacco posters everywhere. Yeah, that's a real that's a real what like West Country thing. I think that's a that's that was a nineties Colorado. Thing. Yeah, nineties yeah, Colorado. <laughs> 
Uh, so yeah, the Russian Revolution happens. The Tsar in Russia is overthrown. Obviously, it's a Marxist workers communist revolution. And Lenin, who's now the head of the Communist Party in Russia, is like, look, we are not doing this. We're not doing the imperialism war thing abroad. We're dropping it. We're dropping anything we got going on in Persia. So he declares the abolition of all Tsarist Russian concessions and privileges in Persia. He's like, we don't need it. We don't need special access to your shit. That's your shit. We're not doing this. And remember, he's the same one who, um, before the Russian Revolution, when the Russian Tsar was trying to get people in Russia to fight in these wars, um, Lenin was the one that's like, don't go fight workers in other countries. Turn your guns on your masters instead. Like, this is not it. So he really, he stood by his word here. He was like, okay, now that I'm in charge, no, that's not happening. But that same year, the British petroleum entrepreneur, William Knox Darcy, who got that 60-year oil contract in Persia, he also died. So around this time, it looks like maybe the region is finally gonna kind of get left alone, alone again for a little bit. But in 1918, just one year later, a pro-British cabinet gets formed called Hassan Wotug al-Dawla. And the next year, they sign an agreement with Lord Curzon known as the Anglo-Persian Agreement, which provides for the reorganization of the Persian army and finances under the British. So they just like one step forward, two steps back. And the Persian nationalists, right, the ones who were like, we need some Persian identity, we need to be left alone. They hate this shit so fucking much. And the cabinet refuses to even convene to ratify the agreement, or parliament does. They're like, we're not meeting with the cabinet to ratify this agreement. Like, no, you guys, you're the worst. So three members of the pro-British cabinet then are rumored to have also received a huge sum of money from the British for even signing the thing in the first place. And the public is like, okay, got it. So basically this is a protection act between the British government and a few rich dudes here who committed treason and tried to sell our country to foreigners, right? It's not going over well. People are getting really, really pissed. So it's 1919 now, and the Persian government sends a delegation to the Paris Peace Conference, demanding the repeal of that 1907 agreement between Britain and Russia that led to Persia's division into spheres of influence. But the British are like, shush, 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 you're not even real, so how can we recognize you? And they don't even get to hear them out. So while all this is going on, people are just, they're getting mad, right? Justifiably so. They can't get a break, everybody wants to control everything still. And in 1920, we see that maybe things start to kind of change. Persia becomes one of the original members of the League of Nations and immediately protests that Anglo-Persian agreement of 1919. And the League of Nations rules in favor of Persia. They're like, yeah, this is fucked up. This isn't, this isn't okay. Meanwhile, though, one of the leaders of the Social Democrat Party from, forms his own semi-independent government that same year. And Bolsheviks from Russia start bombarding the British in per Persian territories, trying to, like, get them to get the fuck away. And then this leftist Persian leader teams up with the Communist Party-led USSR's Red Army to form this, like, revolutionary government, like, inspired by the Russian communists in Persia. And by 1920, we see a Communist Party officially formed in Persia, and Persian communist forces from the Soviet Republic are there. In 1921, Persia and the Soviets signed an agreement according to which all concessions and privileges previously extended to Russia are completely dissolved, but a provision says, look, the Soviet Union can send troops there if Persia is occupied by another country. And in 1923, the Shah Atman leaves Persia for Europe and is just like, basically, fuck this place, I'm not coming back, because it's so chaotic. It's wild. 
So then in 1924, this military commander named Reza Khan gains control of Persia, becoming Reza Shah after being elected by the Constitutional Assembly. And that same year, the Consul General of the American Embassy, Major Robert Imbri, was murdered. And the new government uses this as a pretext to impose martial law and arrest any leaders of oppositional political forces. They're just like, oh, a murder? It must be all you pesky nationalists and constitutionalists fighting here and communists. So martial law goes in place. So then the next year, in 1925, the National Assembly ratifies a law to change the names of the calendar months from Arabic and lunar to Persian and solar. Because remember, on top of dealing with the Ottomans and the Russians and the British and the French and the Germans and the Dutch and the Russians, they're also dealing with the lingering effects of that first Arabic invasion like hundreds of years before, which to me really says a lot about what this region has been through. And in 1927, the Minister of Justice overhauls and reforms the ministry, preparing to bring about this like new civil and commercial code that will secularize the legal system, like divesting the clergy there of any judicial authority and really just kind of like separate church and state in the region. Also at this time, the Treaty of Guarantee and Neutrality with the Soviet Union concludes with each party abstaining from attacking the other or remaining neutral in the event that the other is attacked. Also, all of those privileges uh, that foreigners living in Iran Iran, sorry, got for centuries, those were abolished. And foreign nationals there all of a sudden are subjected to the same laws and regulations that Persian locals have, which is major, because for a long time, they just kind of got carte blanche to do whatever they want. Then in 1928, a national bank is formed, as well as the School of Agriculture. And the National Assembly also approves an opium trade monopoly at the state level. So basically nationalizing opium trade there as well. And it looks like they're kind of a nodding, if not moving towards a planned economy. And as you can imagine, a planned economy, right? What is that? That's communism. So the West freaks out. Sounds commie. Sounds commie, right? So they're, the West is looking at this and they're like, let me get this straight. You guys are cool with the USSR now and you're planning all this economic stuff and you're nationalizing industries. Like this is socialism and we got to get in there fast. So this same year while all this is happening, a law is passed in Iran that requires citizens to wear Western clothing which is really, really unique. And I think the reason for this is that a lot of people in the region were like, well, the West is modern and progressive. So if we want our country, which is now developing all these cool things, we've got the agriculture, we've got the bank, we're doing all these things. If we wanna be modern and progressive, we have to be like the West. But as you can probably guess, the local people are like, we don't wanna be like the West. Like we've been fighting for centuries to maintain any semblance of our own culture we can. And now you wanna take our clothes from us? Like this is super fucked up. So this is kind of one of these conflicting things that starts to emerge within like the region's own government basically about how Western they want to be. So Reza Shah is like, no, this is a nation building exercise. Um, but it ends up just like actually traumatizing a lot of people in the region. There's this huge history there of people fighting to retain their culture and struggling to oppose Western influence in their region. And now there's this law that says you have to give up your culture and you have to basically dress in the clothing of your oppressors. So to the higher ups in the wealthy in Persia at the time, anything Western, yeah, was associated with progress and good. However, we can see the regular people in the region have a totally different take on this and growing dissatisfaction with Western influences like mounting. And we see this push and pull between Westernization at the government level around this time. And in 1930, the people and even the government are trying to dissolve this Anglo-Persian oil company's access to oil in the region. But the company is just like, no, we're not backing out. Like you made this agreement. 
And that same year, uh, the parliament, the National Assembly, passes a law trying to protect the country's historical monuments. And this is because the French, up to this point, had like a monopoly on excavating archaeological sites there. So they're like, no, no, we're really trying to develop our own cultural heritage and experience, which obviously doesn't make sense in the context of making everybody dress in Western clothes. So whatever, though, you have to cool it uh, on stealing all of our historical artifacts. And we are going to have like our own local step in and take this over instead. Also, 1931, Persia's getting friendlier and friendlier with the Soviet Union, giving them better deals and certain privileges and trade agreements. And the foreign trade monopoly law is passed in the assembly, which makes it illegal, basically, to conspire to control an industry and foreign trade in the region, which is a huge dig towards all the British with, like, the tobacco and the oil. They're like, we're not doing this anymore. And in 1932, the government also starts to kind of encourage families to use local textiles for their children at school rather than like doing the Western clothing thing to promote national industry. So not necessarily culturally, but like to promote the local businesses. And that same year, the Parliament Assembly just officially abolishes the Darcy oil concession with the British dude. And representatives of the Anglo-Persian Company are so mad. They are fighting with Reza Shah's cabinet. And this is like this whole issue. Unfortunately, just one year later, you know, the region of Persia, they lose the fight and a new agreement with the Anglo-Persian oil company is signed and approved for an additional 30 years. And this kind of symbolically represented this like change on the part of the Shah that was super sudden and kind of confusing and disappointing for a lot of people. Like around this time also, the Shah started dismissing cabinet members and sending them to prison, then ordering that they be murdered there. So this whole switch up happened between 1932 to 1933 and continued into 1934. So, by 1935, the government officially is like, you know what, stop calling us Persia, call us Iran. Um, and that is the name of the country in Persian. So, similarly, the Academy of Persian Language opened up and started voicing a number of Persian words to replace Arabic words. They're like, no, we're kind of moving back towards our own language and our custom. Again, though, we see that while the government is seeking to preserve national identity on one hand, on the other hand, it's kind of taking these steps that are more like muddied and confusing. Like that same year, the government, again, basically makes it illegal to wear the traditional Arab abba and turban, which makes sense in the conjunction of them wanting to do with the Arabic words, like getting rid of those. However, they instead, again, just ordered the adoption of Western style clothing and hats for all of its citizens. So this became like this law, like, no, we're progressive. And I think this is really interesting because a lot of times you'll see people online being like, look what uh, Iran used to be. And they'll show you these pictures of people in super Western style clothing in like the 60s and the 70s and the 50s. And it's supposed to be symbolic of like how they once were so progressive. But it's like, well, no, people actually didn't want to dress like that. Like most of them were being forced to dress that way. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it's not good for anybody to force you to dress anyway, whether you're super traditional, super covered up, or super, you know, modernized, super Western. It's like, no, people should get to choose how they, what they want to wear and how they want to be. And these people were not choosing to dress in super Western clothing. Have you ever seen those posts that people make about that online? No, but yeah, I would think that that is strange because I'm just like, yeah, if you know the backstory, you're just like, oh, there's there's more going on here. <laughs> right, exactly. And then it's like also the people there are like, okay, politically the agenda was to move away from the Arabic history of the region and reclaim like the pre-Arabic Persian history. But also like people there, a lot of them were exposed to Arab culture for a long time. A lot of them were Islamic and they were just like, no, I like wearing my Arab abba. I like wearing my turban. I don't want to wear these Western clothes. Yeah, I, I think more just like, 
uh, for, to me, it's just more equating Western clothing with progress is like, ooh, not good. Yeah, it's super, super much. Where it's just like, yeah, I'm very much for like, wear what you want. Like, what, wear whatever you, we are in fashion. We, we love fashion. We love fashion. <laughs> we love all sorts of fashion. Wear what you want. Like, whatever, you know. But, you know, just to assume that, you know, just to assume that Western fashion is progressive and traditional fashion is not, is not yeah. good. It's pretty gnarly. It's pretty gnarly. So obviously people really don't like this. And that year there's this whole uprising about the clothing in particular. And this uprising results in heavy casualties because government troops open fire on public and religious leaders who are protesting being forced to wear Western clothes. So meanwhile, what people perceive to be modernization is happening, you know, with less bloodshed elsewhere. The Women's Center opens up, for example. There's this push towards women's rights in Iran and encouraging education. And in 1936, Reza Shah's wife and daughters appear unveiled in public, which is this really secular thing, right? And that same year, uh, though, instead of being just like, yeah, look, you can do whatever feels right to you, women are actually banned from wearing traditional veils at all. And this, again, is a byproduct of that kind of idea of secular, non-religious westernization of clothing being somehow linked to progress or the ideal, which is obviously problematic in a lot of ways. And also, it's like, this is all happening in a region that has been historically trying to push back against Western domination in commerce in terms of, like, tobacco and oil that's happening there. So also that year, uh, while adopting Western-style clothing, Iran gets into tense situations with Western nations. So for example, the Iranian ambassador in Washington gets a traffic violation, and this like tanks all of U.S.-Iranian relations. They're just like, nope, this is such an epic setback, the conflict that emerges from this, very, very destructive. Uh, also, a French newspaper writes an article that's like critical of the Shah, and all relations with France as a nation are broken off completely. So all of the push is like, yes, dress Western, dress Western. They're like, no, we don't want to fuck actually with these Western countries. So it's just very interesting. Then World War II happens and Iran is just like, we're staying out of this. And now they have enough political sovereignty where they actually can make that judgment call, right? By 1940 though, a lot of leftists in Iran have been facing um, some political persecution. There was a group of 53 left-leaning political activists who were imprisoned and their leader, kind of, a Marxist theorist uh, from within that group, he was killed in prison. So this is like where we start to see people pushing back, pushing back, you know, remember the, the government opened fire on the people who were mad about being forced to wear the Western clothes. And this kind of just like political dissent is growing. And in 1941, an Anglo-Soviet alliance forms to fight the Germans. They demand that the Shah expunge the Germans from Iran, and the Shah is like, no, 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 remember, I'm neutral. And Anglo-Soviet forces are like, okay, now we're going to come in there then and we're going to get rid of the Nazis. Because remember, they had that agreement where they were like, well, if people are in there we don't want to deal with, we, we're allowed to come in here and get rid of them. And they do this actually pretty easily. But because of this whole conflict and this whole neutrality and, you know, the Soviet Union coming in, all of this leads to the situation where the Shah is forced to abdicate the throne and his son takes over instead. Um, but his son, honestly, is kind of like a weak, a weak guy. He's not a good leader. If you're doing a monarchy, you need a, a real str strong, strong boy. Strong boy. <laughs> strong, boy. <laughs> strong boy monarch. And well, he's not a strong boy What about boy Queen Elizabeth? Was she a strong boy? Uh, no, but oh. you know. 
all the movies that are like Queen Elizabeth. Oh, I don't know anything about Queen Elizabeth. Or maybe it was Catherine the Great. I don't know. Catherine the Great was pretty strong, I think. She was a yeah, strong Yeah, actually boy. the story behind Catherine the Great is actually like kind of funny. She was she was she Russian? Uh no, she was not. What was she? I forget what she was, but she basically was just like, I am Russian now. I love being Russian. My husband is fucking stupid. <laughs> like I'm with you. I'm with you, Russian people. Like, fuck this guy. But, like, if you listen to the story, it's just, like, strange. Yeah, a lot about her was strange. And I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, um, but most of what I know about Catherine the Great is because in high school once we did one of those um, role play roundtable discussions in history class, AP European history class, where you had to pretend to be like a, a leader and argue for something. And I got assigned Catherine the Great and then I had to defend serfdom. Oh. Because she was like, we're freeing the serfs. And then the serfs were just like, yeah, fuck yeah. And then they just like partied too hard. And she was like, never mind, you're out of control. So everyone was like, trying, I have to be Catherine the Great. And they're like, what's up with the serfs? What, why did you re- yeah, resurf I, them? I like listened to this whole podcast about Catherine the Great. I forget what, where it was on, but it was it was quite interesting where they're like, she was kind of progressive for her time. That's totally what it is. <laughs> yes. So, okay, you know, whatever. They got not strong boy leader. He's not doing a good job. And meanwhile, while all this is happening, there's this pro-Soviet leftist Marxist political party that's formed that's called the Tudeh Party, I believe is how it's pronounced. It's T-U-D-E-H. And it's formed by a veteran of the Social Democratic Party. And in perhaps the most stunning case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend that we will ever talk about on this podcast, the British and American armies take over the Iranian railroad system to better send supplies to the Soviet Union. Oh, yeah, because uh, uh, the U.S. and Britain were allied with the Soviet Union in World War II. Right, against the Nazis. So in 1942, they signed this treaty between Iran, Britain, and the Soviet Union, allowing the Allied forces to remain in Iran for the duration of the war. And in 1943, Iran joins the Allies in the war, declares war on Nazi Germany, and then they're like, also, we're in the U.N. now. And there's this whole conference that happens with Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin to discuss the opening of a second front in Western Europe. And they declare and guarantee Iranian independence and territorial integrity and agree to provide economic assistance to Iran after the war. So they're like, you have been useful to us in helping each other. We're going to look out for you, little buddy. And the next year, the Communist Tuta Party works with the USSR Red Army and gains nine seats in the local parliament assembly. And the government requests that Allied troops evacuate Iranian territory, which they do the following year in 1945. Meanwhile, the USSR is supporting communist efforts from locals within Iran still. But the new premier of the parliament doesn't like this. So he goes to Moscow to meet with Stalin to discuss them kind of like cooling off from their role and supporting the Iranian communists, right? That same parliament leader, though, does include three communist you know, leaders from the Tudor party into his cabinet to kind of appease people. But also, you know, he goes to, to meet with Stalin and he's like, could you guys not try to support the revolutionary efforts in our country? And Stalin's like, uh, no, we're not going to stop doing that. Our whole thing is that we support communist revolution wherever people want them. Uh, so the parliament leader is just like, okay, fine. Would you consider withdrawing military presence if we gave you an oil concession? So this is their back to their old tricks with the oil concession, right? And this forms this Soviet Iranian oil company. 
And Stalin is like, you know what, this is strategically beneficial to us, so sure, let's do it. And uh, they draft up this whole plan, and they take it to Parliament, and Parliament's like, we're not fucking ratifying that. Like, get this fucking oil concession out of here, right? So the Iranian army is just kind of like, okay, fine, I guess we're just going to go into Azerbaijan, where the USSR army has been hanging out, and we're just going to kind of strong arm them out of the way. And this totally works. They have some sort of military success, which, like, has not happened for them. It's not been going great for them up to this point. So, meanwhile, 1946, right, Iran establishes a ministry of labor, they establish trade union organizations, they get a minimum wage, and it's really cool. You can really start to see that communist influence in the cabinet. They're looking out for the workers a little bit. Now, at this time, though, the communist party in Iran starts to become super conflicted, which communist parties have a tendency to do throughout history. Some people are like, uh, I think we might be too obsessed with the USSR, we need to be more focused on Iran. And then some more nationalist party members are kind of like, we're going to separate from the Tudor party and form our own party, um, while the Tudor party kind of stays the course, you know, they're more supporting the USSR kind of agenda. But in 1949, an attempt gets made on the Shah's life, and people are like, it's got to be the Communist Party who did this, right? So the Communist Party is officially outlawed, and its leaders are all thrown in jail. Following this, the Constituent Assembly convenes and grants the Shah power to basically dissolve Parliament whenever he wants. And the Iranian armed forces also adopt American-style military uniforms, which is pretty gnarly. And the Shah goes to the United States to meet with President Truman, and he's like, I'm going to build a relationship with this guy. So following this, the Plan Organization is founded, which is this new government agency in Iran to oversee Iran's economic development. However, this is wild, the seven-year economic development plan that's proposed is all totally made under the direction of the Americans. What? So the Shah at this time is like, I need someone strong by my side. I am not a strong boy, so I am going to cozy up to the United States. Okay. So this is why he starts doing all these really pro-U.S. moves. He goes there, he's like, help us with our economy. Like, we'll be your friend. Look, all my soldiers dress like you. Hee <laughs> hee. And everybody back in Iran is like, what? Why are you doing this? This is pretty, pretty weird. We don't like this. So while all of this is going on, a brand new political party forms, which is called the National Front. And this is a decidedly anti-imperialist party, okay? They're like, you know what? We see what's going on here with you cozying up to the Americans. You're cozying up to the British. You're cozying up to everybody. You're doing everything except for looking out for I Iran's national interests. We are not into this. They are very, very vocally anti-imperialist. And it is founded by this guy, Mohammad Mossadegh, who is maybe the most important person from a United States perspective in all of like Iranian history. And this is a party where a lot of people in it have totally different political affiliations, but they share just a few common goals that they decided are more important than anything they don't have in common. They want the fight for Iranian independence, freedom, and resistance to foreign intervention. So this is kind of their whole thing. These are the people who are like, we are tired of our entire history being other people coming in and taking shit and us just having to deal with it. We want leaders who stand up for us, who look out for us. This is this new political party, the National Front. And given the history of Iran, this makes like a lot of sense, right? They've been dealing with foreign intervention now for centuries. And the party starts to get really popular. It resonates with a lot of people, especially while the Shah is out here letting the United States dictate the financial plan for the whole country, right? Everyone's like, yeah, fuck this. We're tired of it. And in 1950, this new National Front party 
really starts to pick up steam. They're getting seats in Parliament, all while the Iranian government is making arms deals now with the United States. So Iranian government cozying up to the United States. People in Iran getting really fucking mad. National Front Party is kind of this combative political party force that's rising to power to try to put a stop to all of this. And in 1951, everything gets major. So up to this point, basically, we've been dealing with, like, the backstory, which is a lot. It's a lot because I do feel like it's important. Like, I had no idea that the history of Iran was one marked by so many different people trying to take control of it, right? Did you know anything about that? I did not. And it's a lot. I feel like it's one of the most detailed histories of conquests and seizures and different, like, foreign interests that I've ever heard of in a region. Seems like a lot of uh, colonialism. It's a lot of colonizations. Yes, definitely. So, 1951 is where our story as the United States really, really picks up steam here. This is where we start to see the foundation of shit really hitting the fan. We got Mossadegh as the leader of the National Front Party, that anti-imperialist party seeking to liberate Iran from foreign interests. And he actually gets appointed to be the leader of parliament. He's elected as basically the prime minister. And what does he do? Well, he starts going after all of those British oil companies that the last Shah allowed to access Iran for 60 years. And he's like, get these Westerners the fuck out of here. Our oil fields are ours. And he starts nationalizing all of the oil fields. And at first, the U.S. is like, uh, England, maybe you should get in there and talk to Mossadegh about what's happening. Um, but then England's like, I don't think there's, there, there's anything we can do about this. Like, what the fuck? And everybody in England gets super, super mad. And then the United States gets super, super mad because, one, they're allies of England, right? They have that whole special relationship. But, obviously, the United States also super hates any sort of socialist nationalization of business measures, right? Since that all counters capitalism. So Mossadegh instantly is at odds with, like, all of the pro-Western uber-wealthy in Iran, as well as with the Shah, who just got all buddy-buddy with Truman, remember? And also, yeah, with, like, every Western country. And in 1952, the Shah tries to dismiss Mossadegh from parliament. He tries to fire him. But remember, Mossadegh was elected. So once this happens, massive public uprisings occur. The, everybody's like, no, you fucking don't. Like, we love this guy. This is our guy. We fucking hate you. We voted this guy in. And the Shah has no choice but to reinstate him. Or, like, the whole country's going to fall apart, basically. Meanwhile, the U.S. and England start working together in this covert operation funneled through the CIA to figure out what exactly they can do to deal with this Mossadegh guy, who was surely like a socialist and therefore at least USSR sympathetic, they figured, and also was going to threaten their financial interests abroad in terms of oil. Now remember, the CIA's main goal in the USA has always been to fight communism, right? And if communism is a system where workers own the means of production and resources are given from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, that means that the privately owned businesses under Western capitalism aren't able to make any profit when they're interacting with this communist system. So the CIA sees all of these oil fields being nationalized and is like, this is a threat on so many fucking levels. And on his part, Mossadegh just breaks off diplomatic relations with Britain completely. And Britain's like, oh, fine, we're imposing an oil embargo on you. And he's just kind of like, I don't fucking care. My whole goal is to be rid of you. So it's important to remember Mohammad Mossadegh, democratically elected prime minister. And by the time 1953 rolls around, we've got Dwight D. Eisenhower in charge over in the United States. And he's like, yes, 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 CIA, I see what you mean. Nationalizing the oil fields, that is the first step on the path towards communism. Uh, next thing you know, the Tuda are going to be 
all in charge of everything over there and they're going to have the USSR back and it's just going to be this whole region of power and our oil interests are going to be totally screwed. So he kind of extra authorizes the CIA to go forward and do something about this Mossadegh guy. So the CIA and British intelligence are working with the Shah to create a plan to overthrow Mossadegh permanently. And Mossadegh hears about this and is like, uh, I think they're trying to kill me or something. What the fuck? And all of his supporters take to the streets in protest. So again, this is 1953. And the Shah is like, ah, fuck. And he like leaves the country for what he calls medical reasons. And it's just like, oh, I can't deal with this right now. So then British intelligence is like, oh, this is getting really messy. Like, fuck it, we're out. But the CIA obviously is like, we love pain, let's go. So they keep on this thing. They're working with both the Iranian military and the pro-Shah rich dudes to organize a second coup to overthrow Mossadegh. So on August 19th, 1953, the Shah's Iranian military, backed by paid demonstrators who were on the CIA's payroll, marched through the streets and seized Mossadegh. And he is tried by a military tribunal who sentences him to imprisonment, but says that he can serve it on house arrest in his village. Because they know if they killed him, people would really burn this whole thing down, right? So Mossadegh dies under house arrest uh, just a few years after that in 1967. So meanwhile, now the Shah comes back and he's like, oh, what happened while I was gone? Or whatever, right? And all of the Iranian people just fucking hate this guy you know he's only able to stay in power from this point because he has the full fucking american military backing him and as a thank you for that support he signs over 40 percent of iran's oil fields to american british and french companies for the next 25 years undoing all the nationalization that mossadegh had done so if you were ever wondering how closely tied the U.S. government is with U.S. companies, they're two heads of the same coin here. It's not like the U.S. military and CIA staged a coup out of the kindness of their hearts and then somehow randomly and coincidentally the Shah decided to give nearly half of the country's oil over to totally unrelated and different American companies, right? Like we know very much that this is all like a corporate oligarchy planned political movement. So from this day going forward, the Shah is like in the USA's back pocket basically. And in 1954, the Iranian government reaches an agreement with a bunch of Western oil companies to let them, yeah, come back into Iran, profit off of the oil industry. And parliament is now led by this pro-Shah force. And they're like, yes, great. We love this, right? It's kind of like a puppet parliament and a puppet king. Basically, the CIA-led coup transformed Iran's constitutional leadership into a royal dictatorship led by Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. And this was everything that Mossadegh was trying to fight against. He's like, our Shah should reign but not rule. But now, of course, we see the Shah has total power to do whatever he wants. He's got this puppet parliament that's just going to do whatever he says. And the USA is standing beside him, armed to the teeth, just like you mess with our guy, you mess with us. Meanwhile, though, despite all of this power, resistance is still popping up all over Iran. The Shah is finding Tudor communists all over the place, including in his own military, hiding out, trying to conspire to find ways to take him down. You know, he's taking all the communists to trial to have them be executed. And then in 1957, the United States is like, look, we're going to help you. You need something. You need something like we got going on here. But there, you need a secret police. So the United States in 1957 helps the Shah form this thing called the Savak, which is the Iranian secret police. And uh, ironically, not to give too much away, the Savak end up killing their own founder in 1970 because he is like, I fucking hate the Shah. So 
Through the rest of the 50s and the early 60s, this arrangement between Iran and the USA is just kind of trucking along. And by 1964, the Shah even gets a law passed saying that all American military members get full diplomatic immunity to Iran to do whatever the fuck they want which is wild, and this pisses off the Iranian people even more. And in 1965, schools in Iran are even altered to switch to an American-based model of education. There is also some progress politically happening here. Like in 1967, the Family Protection Law is passed, which promotes women's rights. And in 1969, the Ministry of Justice appoints a number of women as judges. However, none of this is enough to satisfy the average Iranian person, who at this point is just fucking miserable with all of this Western control. And in 1972, Richard Nixon visits Iran and all of these leftist guerrilla groups carry out these acts of sabotage with students even grouping together to throw stones at his motorcade as he drives by. While Nixon is here, he's like, look, can you help secure U.S. interests in the Middle East on a greater scale? The USSR is all cozied up with Iran and if you want to help us, you can buy any non-nuclear weapon system you want. And the Shah is like, sure. Yeah, I'll help you. I'll help whatever you want to happen in the Middle East. I'll look out for you. And I just get to buy whatever non-nuclear weapon system that I want? Cool, I like that, I like that. But what the U.S. doesn't know is that the Shah has, like, a lot more fucking money than they guessed. And he just goes ham. He buys this huge cache of high-tech weaponry. And the United States is kind of like, holy shit, is this a power move? Because, remember, up to this point, this guy's been really, really meek and timid. So... Meanwhile, while all this is happening, OPEC also gets formed, which is basically a coalition of oil-rich countries like Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and they start really taking control of the profit from their oil fields, which is also kind of a passive-aggressive threat to the USA, too. So the USA is like, whoa, 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 this is supposed to be our guy. You know, we set him up, and all of a sudden, he's buying a lot of weapons, and he's totally taking control of the oil fields. And in 1973, this leads to, do you know what happened here pertaining to oil in the United States? Oh, the, uh, where the oil crisis. Yeah, it was a gas crisis that happens because of this. The OPEC oil crisis happens. And Arab members of the organization band together and they boycott oil exports to Western countries that supported Israel during the Arab-Israeli war. Whoa. Yeah, they're like, fuck you guys. I didn't realize that's what caused it. Yeah, so they get together and they're like, nah, we're punishing you, we're teaching you a lesson because the Middle East is getting really pissed off at Israel, right? And obviously Israel is like the little weird son of the United States. And this means that the price of oil quadruples and Iranian oil revenues go up to over $20 billion, which is why the Shah had all that secret money, right, that was going to come in that he could use to pay for these massive high-tech weapon systems. Whoa. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the United States, oil prices rose from the embargo nearly 300%. Whoa. Yeah. And basically, the Shah, through all this, is getting a little rowdy. He's getting too rowdy. He's stepping out of line too much. He's becoming too independent from his American overlords. He's still killing any leftist he can get his hands on. And in 1974, even the popular poet and leftist political activist Khosro uh, Golsorki was executed by him. So 1975, the Shah is mad with power at this point. He's like, you know what we need? We need a single party system. And this isn't like a planned economy, single party system, like a Marxist-Leninist vanguard party or something like that. No, this is called the Resurrection Party. And this lasts from just 1975 to 1978. And this is just a political party all about how great the Shah is. And there's these compulsory membership fees and a whole lot of anti-Semitism. And in general, it's just 
pretty fucking shitty. And he's like, well, if you're Iranian, it's your duty to be in the party and give me your money. Boop. It was so bad, in fact, that even the apolitical people in Iran were like, okay, this is the final straw. I just got political. Fuck this guy. So he manages to make, like, everyone, even the people who do not care, totally fucking hate him. That same year, Marxist theorist Bijan Jazani was murdered in an Iranian prison, and 10 members of the revolutionary leftist group People's uh, Mojahedin Organization of Iran, which I think that's just what people call the Mojahedin, they were sentenced to death for the assassination of three American colonels in Iran. And the next year, another leftist guerrilla group suffers heavy losses of their top leadership. So by 1976, Amnesty International starts to notice a lot of political opponents are dying, and they're like, uh, hey, Shah of Iran, what you doing over there? What's going on over there? It seems like a lot of your enemies are getting murdered. And they launched this whole critique of Iran's alleged human rights violations and treatment of political prisoners. And in 1976, also Jimmy Carter is elected president of the United States. And remember, the Shah is no longer the quiet puppet dictator on the US's dole. He's gone kind of mad with power from the American perspective since they expected him to just like unilaterally uphold American interests forever, no matter the cost. And Jimmy Carter is like, hey, straight up, fuck the Shah. And the Shah is like, fuck, we don't want the U.S. mad at us. This is going to be bad. So, you know, they kind of cool off the conflict for a little while. But this also means that the resistance groups have a little room to breathe. So the Shah's laying low. They're not imprisoning so many political prisoners. It's starting to look really bad on the global stage. Everyone's starting to get mad. So he's like, okay, okay, okay. We'll let them live, do their thing. And they're like, we will, in fact, do our thing. And the resistance groups really start to rise up. So by 1977, 40 poets and writers came together in Iran to sign a declaration demanding freedom of expression and an end to censorship. And 53 judges and lawyers signed an open letter to the court demanding human rights guarantees. And people are so mad that the Shah is like, okay, you know what? I'm getting rid of the prime minister that you all hate that was like my puppet guy in charge. Is that going to make you happy? So the prime minister steps down after 13 years serving. And this new guy who's a little softer maybe steps in. And right away, the new guy's like, you know what we're doing? We're releasing 343 political prisoners. That's going to be good, right? And what we see happen here is that the National Front, who was the party of Mossadegh, who's in prison, you know, by this point he's dead, they come back into action. They were dormant for a decade, but now they're like rallied again. And also, a key religious leader in the region, the Ayatollah, starts distributing tapes everywhere about what a fucking douchebag the Shah is and how much he hates him. But in Ayatollah speak, he wouldn't speak like that. He's a religious man. So he's like, you know what we should do? We should totally revolt against this guy because this guy is the worst. Now, in 1977, the Shah visits President Carter in the White House. It's chaos outside. Protesters are fighting with each other outside the gates. People are getting tear gassed. It's a whole thing. This is how divisive and disliked this man is. And, you know, Carter then goes back and visits the Shah in Iran on New Year's Eve of that same year. And Carter is like, wow, you know what? Your, your country's pretty stable. Everything around you is super, super fucked up. You're, like, kind of holding it together, which is kind of a wild statement to make because it's like, I wonder what country could be responsible for making the entire Middle East completely unfucking stable right? Like, it's the United States. But whatever. The Shah is like, okay, so he likes me now, right? And he gets... A little, he gets a little cocky. 
he gets a little sassy. So he's like, well, the military on the U.S. isn't going to murder me. They like me a little bit now. So he orders the publication of a humiliating article in the local news about how much that religious leader, the Ayatollah, who hated him, about how he's just a little shit. So he's like, I'm safe. The U.S. doesn't hate me anymore. So then he calls up the papers and he's like, yeah, write a fucking burn piece. Write like a diss track on the Ayatollah. And this ends up being the biggest mistake this man could have made. This does not go unnoticed. The Ayatollah is like extremely well liked in Iran. And a few days later on January 9th of 1978, all of these protesters hit the street to protest this shitty, petty article that the Shah had written about the Ayatollah. And what do the police do? They do what the police always do. They fire into the crowd and kill people indiscriminately. And this just gets people more riled up. So by February, anti-government demonstrations are going wild. There start to be riots every 40 days, like on the anniversary of the protesters' deaths, all throughout the country. And on June 5th, the left-leaning freedom movement calls for a general strike. So at this point, we're like in full-blown revolution mode in Iran. Iran, sorry. By August, there were riots throughout the country. The former Speaker of the Senate, Prime Minister and head of the Pahlavi Foundation is appointed Prime Minister of this like reconciliation government that's supposed to try to fix things. But by September, like 100,000 protesters are in the streets calling for the Ayatollah to be able to come back to Iran. The Ayatollah had been kind of in hiding after the Shah hated him. And they're like, bring back the Ayatollah. Like, we love him. This is fucked up. Thousands of protesters start clashing with the military, and on September 8th, a day they nicknamed Black Friday, 164 people died in these fights. So on October 8th, the strikes pick up even more steam in major industries. We're talking oil, hospitals, media, power plants, postal services, public transportation, steel, schools, you name it. And the Ayatollah, right, he's exiled kind of from Iran. He goes to France, and he goes on TV, and he's like, yeah, this shit is fucked. Fuck the Shah. We need him out of here. But again... In nice religious man speak, not how I talk. So, I don't know about nice. In religious man, so he's a strong, he's a man of strong religious convictions. So this brings us all the way up to November 5th, 1978. We got riots. We got protesters. We got government buildings being ransacked. We got banks being lit on fire. We got the whole cabinet resigning uh, in parliament. They've been replaced by just a straight up military government. A state of martial law is imposed. There is no freedom of press. And the Shah is like going in the media and he's like, oh, like I really want to end martial law. Um, you're all mad. I mean, would you calm down? Then I'll end martial law. Like what if I just release these 210 political prisoners? But mm, you're also being so naughty. I can't end martial law now. And this does not go as he's planning. People are just even more mad. So the offices of the secret police, the Savak, remember the ones that the United States helped create? These get totally ransacked, attacked. Bank stores and police stations are all set on fire. Oil workers by December are all on strike at the request of the Ayatollah. And at this point, the Shah is like, okay, okay, everybody. Why don't we negotiate, right? So he's like, what will make people happy? And then he goes and finds this close collaborator of Mossadegh. Remember, the guy that the United States overthrew and who was imprisoned and died. He goes to his close collaborator and he's like, hey, would you mind being the prime minister, please? People are like really mad and they really liked Mossadegh. And the collaborator is like, are you going to stay in the country and face the justice you deserve for being like a terrible fucking person who sold all of our interests out to the US and like the UK abroad? 
uh, or what? Are you going to flee? And he's like, well, I was going to flee. And then the guy's like, then I'm not fucking doing it. Like, no. So eventually he finds uh, a prominent member of the National Front, right, which was the political party of Mossadegh. And he's like, how about you? Like, will you come kind of take over and be prime minister now? Because this is all falling apart. And this new guy is like, okay, fine. By 1979, though, things have not chilled out, even with this new guy in. A nine-member Regency Council is established to allow for the Shah's departure. And the Shah and his family are just like, we're not actually leaving. We're just going on vacation to Egypt for like a really long time, uh, which is not true. They're fleeing. So they leave and all the power is handed over to the new prime minister. And some people like him, right? Some people like this guy. They're like, oh, yeah, National Front guy. Okay. 150,000 people show up in support of him, right? Because he's from the party that Mossadegh was from. But other people are like, you know what? Fuck this guy too. And protests are still happening. So the Ayatollah at this point comes back and everyone is stoked. They're like, all right, you know what? The Ayatollah should appoint the new prime minister of the provisional government. And he chooses this guy who's a devout Muslim professor and former member of the National Front turned leader of the freedom movement. So he kind of is like got his hands in everywhere. He's religious, but also he's on this like leftist kind of front and he's a man of education. So the troops all leave parliament, army commanders are arrested and revolutionary militia groups take over instead. Four high ranking Savak members, the secret police of the Shah are killed. And this new prime minister is like, hey guys, love the support, love uh, what these militias are doing, just randomly killing people. That's really nice. But I don't think I can do my job if you revolutionary forces just keep killing people. It's kind of like vigilante style. So they're all like, okay, yeah, 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 respect. We're going to cool it. And by the end of March 1979, a totally new Islamic Republic is approved in a nationwide referendum. And then the Ayatollah is like, hey, you know what would be fun? Let's just kill that guy who was prime minister for 13 years too. We hate him. So they just, they kill him too. They're just like, yeah, he's fucked up. But he was like, I'm turning myself in. Please don't kill me. And they're like, yeah, we definitely won't kill you. And then they're like, no, we're killing you. We all fucking hate you. So what happens from this is this like really complicated issue. We got the Ayatollah. We got the New Front. We got the Mossadegh people. We got leftists. We got all these people kind of with their hands in everywhere. And it's not like there's one defining voice of what people want because people are different. So workers' councils in Iran uh, arose during the revolution and many of them grew hostile to the Ayatollah in the process. According to this one paper that was published in 1981, many local shoras, which is what they call the councils, control their factories and even the output and production priorities of their industries. Peasants have begun to take over the land themselves. National minorities have forced the ter- uh, Tehran regime to recognize some of their rights. The far left and working class political organizations can now organize, publish, and demonstrate in the face of the regime. All such gains will turn out to be untenable over time unless the working class takes state power, but none of them could have existed for a moment under the Shah's rule. And this kind of sets the scene. They're like, well, yeah, it's good we don't have the Shah anymore. We have this room to breathe, but like, is the Ayatollah really going to like facilitate this leftist kind of political revolution? And then from this cultural perspective, a lot of other people were really extolling the virtues of the Ayatollah and Islam on the whole. That same paper in 1981 also wrote, despite all the propaganda in the Western press, a spirit of exhilaration swept the neo-colonial world as the Iranians crushed the monarchy armed to the teeth by the US and stood off American threats for two years. Even though the Iranians are not Arabs, popular sentiment in the Middle East for Iran persists despite the current war. 
Yusuf M. Ibrahim, a New York Times correspondent, wrote on October 26, there is no precise way to gauge the degree of the Ayatollah's influence in the Gulf. There are no polls. News organizations print and broadcast what they are told to by the governments. Most political dissent is suppressed and kept out of the public eye. But in many casual conversations two weeks ago in Basra, the large city in southern Iraq and a Shiite stronghold, it was more than obvious that people did not have much sympathy for their government. A typical comment in the Dusty Bazaar was, if you ask what they really think, people will tell you that in their heart they are all for Khomeini, that's the Ayatollah, he is a man of God. How can one fight that? This is a feeling that is sensed elsewhere in the Gulf among Shiites and Sunni Muslims almost equally. So according to this report and many others, it's Islam that accounts for much of the international solidarity in what they call the third world for the Iranian revolution. The paper goes on to discuss the unique nature of the Iranian revolution and how it relates to Islam, one that people globally still seem to struggle to like parse today. In one exchange from 2007 between American communists with Iranian communists, the Iranian communists are actually just like, no, we hate all of Islam, get it out of here. And the American communists are like, we're not really gonna dismiss all of Islam as the enemy. Like the enemy is definitely just US imperialism and like British imperialism. So on the flip side, some Marxist Iranian revolutionaries also were saying like, no, you can't extract Islam from the revolution. They said throughout the Middle East and the world, the decidedly secular nationalism of the westernized class, the bourgeoisie, the professionals, the intellectuals, the military has failed in its promise to break the grip of imperialism. As the situation worsens for the masses, they search for an answer. Where the national bourgeoisie failed, the pseudo-communists who backed them also showed their bankruptcy. Secularism today is rife with cynical acceptance of the imperial facets of life, and its left face is hardly more attractive. So basically what we see here is these growing contingencies, they're not singular, they're not even binary, and they're not easy to parse. It's this whole complex way that people are assessing what's going on in Iran during the revolution. There are communists who love Islam and they love their cultural heritage and traditions and they're happy to return to them. There are communists who are strictly secular in nature and want progress, but falsely associate that progress with either Westernism or the USSR, denying the potential for an Islamic progressive future. There are pro-Western secular capitalists. There are conservative religious capitalists. And through all of this, the new government of the Ayatollah is obviously extremely religious, but also pretty nationalist in that preserving our cultural heritage way and anti-imperialist. So they nationalized 37 private banks and virtually all of Iran's large scale industries, which is definitely a socialist move. But on the flip side, the Ayatollah is like, uh, yeah, we also need to close 33 newspapers and magazines, many of which were just like leftist leaning progressive papers. And the two largest newspapers, they just got appropriated by the government. And the government approved a clause in the new constitution that was like, uh, the Ayatollah also can just do whatever he wants. Like, he's above the law. So this really isn't like a cut and dry good guys versus bad guys thing, right? It's just a bunch of regular guys trying to figure out how to best move forward in a place that's been obviously fucking ravaged by centuries of imperialism. What everyone can agree on though, is that the US backed Shah was the fucking worst. And around this time, coincidentally, the Shah pops up back on the scene in the United States. He's in New York and it turns out he has cancer and he's sick and he is getting treatment, medical treatment for that cancer in New York. And as you can imagine, when people hear this, that the US let the Shah in, they flip out. They're like, he should be here. He should be atoning for all the shit he put us through. He's a corrupt asshole. And they're like, okay, United States, that was your guy. Send him back into us, right? And this is where we get to Argo. Mm. It's a long buildup, right? Okay, so to recap, 
We had Iran in a position where they were democratically electing their own leadership with left-leaning progressive socialist values of anti-imperialism actively trying to resist American forces. The USA did not like that, right? Because it hurt the financial interests of the West. So the CIA had that guy overthrown and imprisoned and gave a bunch of money and backing to basically the king instead to do whatever he wanted as long as he looked out for the USA. The king uh, was a good dog for a while, right? He helped out the Americans, but the locals were like, we really hate the king. Not just because of how much he backed the United States, but also because he was like trying to westernize Iran to be more like the US, outlawing uh, wearing religious clothing or cultural garments, the whole nine yards. So the religious leader there, the Ayatollah, got into conflict with the king and left for like 13 years, 14 years. Meanwhile, the CIA-backed king is like, actually, what if I went off script a little and did my own thing over here? And then he goes a little mad with power, right? And he ends up creating this one-party state, forcing people to give him money, dress exactly how he wants, all while becoming super combative when it came to, like, anybody kind of too far on the left. And the whole reason that the U.S. was super involved in Iran to begin with was oil, and he was like, also, this is my oil. Hee hee hee. Right. So after this, there's this huge revolution that happens. And um, he gets into this fight with the Ayatollah. The Ayatollah is like, I'm supporting the revolution. And the revolution ends up being backed by everyone who hated U.S. imperialism, which is a wide net to cast. Uh, And also, when the Ayatollah got involved, everybody who was super religious. So now you have this huge base of people who are fighting against the Shah. And when the Shah is overthrown, we have this theocratic leadership in place that people today are currently protesting in Iran. As it stands today, the United States overthrew Iran's last democratically elected leader, Mossadegh. And it wasn't until March of 2000 that then U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright officially acknowledged this, saying uh, the United States played a significant role in orchestrating the overthrow of Iran's popular prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. She even went on to say the coup was a setback for Iran's political development and that she sympathized with the Iranians who continue to resent this intervention by America in their internal affairs. In August 2013, uh, that's when the CIA officially declassified a document acknowledging its role in the coup. So that's where we are by the time we get to Argo. So obviously, absolutely all of this started because the USA sent the CIA to overthrow the democratically elected prime minister back in the 1950s, right? And this is where we get to Argo and we are at the US embassy in Iran. And to really view it from like the perspective of people in Iran now, you can see you're like, here is this institution of the United States. It seems like an institution of imperialism, even if it's technically not. It's filled with American agents, it's flying an American flag, and a country that is just so fucking tired of seeing Americans anywhere in their shit. And there are protesters outside who've been protesting now for years, they are mad at this whole fucking mess, and they know that it was the Americans who started it. And what ends up happening, this is the Argo setup, is a group of students so mad at the U.S. Embassy that they're like, alright, you got our guy, the Shah, over in the United States and you won't give him to us. So we're going to get some of your guys. We're going to break into the embassy and we are going to capture all of the Americans there. And they do this. They break into the embassy, they seize control, and they take 52 Americans hostage. And they say, look, United States, like you intervened here as much as you possibly could. You've been pulling the strings. You instilled, you know, the puppet dictator. Give us the Shaw back so he can face the consequences of his actions and we will release your hostages. And the United States is like, fuck. Okay, but no, we're not releasing the Shaw. 
What if instead we just sever ties with you, completely sanction all Iranian oil imports and freeze all Iranian assets that we can get our hands on? And this does not scare anybody. It doesn't do anything. And the American hostages in, you know, the Iranian hostage con... Uh, what is it called? The Iran hostage crisis, I yes. think it's called. Yeah, yeah. They end up getting held for 444 days. Wow. A really long time. So the United States and Iran officially sever all diplomatic relations, right? And the cultural revolution, as they call it, is beginning in Iran. They close down institutions of higher education for two years. Um, they form Islamic committees to run the universities. And this is the start of what people call... Yeah, this cultural revolution, but it's also just kind of like a de-westernization effort, and it's a direct response to U.S. imperialism. So less than one hour, though, after Ronald Reagan becomes president in 1980, the hostages from the U.S. embassy are released. He signs a deal. He's like, yes, free them. And as part of the negotiations, the USA promises to never intervene in Iranian politics again. Do you think we stuck to that? Oh, probably not. Yeah, no, we did not. We did not. So, meanwhile, in 1980, uh, Abul Hassan uh, Banisadir is elected the first president of the new Islamic Republic of Iran with 75% of the vote. But one year later, the Ayatollah removes him from power, allegedly because he was too sympathetic to left-wing revolutionary forces like the People's uh, Mujahideen Organization of Iran. He flees to Paris, and he ends up joining the opposition called the National Council of Resistance, established by the Mujahideen. So in September of 1980, um, basically there's this fear of like a religious uprising happening against Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. So Saddam Hussein is like, oh, that Ayatollah is pretty powerful there. Uh, he's like uniting people under Islam. Like, what if my people united against me? So he's like, you know what? We gotta, Iraq's gotta go into Iran. That's what we have to do. And the U.S. is like, oh, I see uh, Saddam Hussein that you have a nice little anti-Iranian action going on over there. We want in on that. We also hate them. So they provide, we, the United States, provide Iraq with economic aid, training, military technology, all the way through this war between Iraq and Iran that doesn't end until 1988. It's an eight-year war. And keep in mind, this is right after the U.S. vowed to never intervene in Iranian pol politics again. Wow. Oh, yeah. And it's, I feel like it's the thing where you always see the picture of Donald Rumsfeld shaking Saddam Hussein's hand and you're like, what? <laughs> yes. And it's because like, oh yeah, they used, to, they used to be buds. Total buds. Right. And also while this is happening, the CIA knows, for example, oh, the Iraqi military, they're using chemical weapons against the Iranians and an estimated 1 million people in Iran died and half a million people in Iraq died in this war. This was like not a chill war. This was like a really fucking intense war. What? A mil million people. Yeah, a million people in Iran died, and half a million people in Iraq died. Whoa. Yeah, this was like a really, it was a bad war. The chemical weaponry was really, really bad, and the United States, again, had just signed a thing being like, we're never going to interfere again. But the second Saddam Hussein in Iraq was like, I'm afraid of the Ayatollah. He has a lot of power. The U.S. was like, don't worry, buddy, we got your back. And they were just in there supporting us. Um, also, like, by 1983, Lebanon and Iran have this thing going on. So basically, the Ayatollah is like, hey, this religious theocracy we established over here is going super well. Other countries should do the same. And some people in Lebanon are like, hey, you know what? That sounds really good. So this religious political party emerges, inspired by the Ayatollah in Iran, and they 
are like, yeah, you know what? We hate the West too. We love Islam. So Iran starts giving this revolutionary political party called Hezbollah money and support. They like what they're doing. And on October 23rd, 1983, two trucks loaded with explosives drive into barracks housing American and French service members of this like multinational force in Lebanon. And they're like bombs driving trucks into these barracks where everybody is and they detonate. And this attack kills 241 U.S. military personnel, which is the highest single day death toll for the U.S. armed forces since literally the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. So a group named Islamic Jihad, uh, which is widely believed just to be a front for Hezbollah, claims responsibility for the attack. And the United States is like, okay, we're getting all of our Marines out of Lebanon. And also, we're declaring that Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, And this is interesting to me that they called it terrorism because, one, it was the U.S. military, and two, they were in Lebanon on a military mission. And it was Lebanon that was like, no, get out. Not Lebanon as a country, but Lebanese people. So technically, I feel like terrorism is different. Yeah, I feel like Like, terrorism doesn't really mean anything, but if we're deciding what it means, it doesn't mean that. It seems just like a military operation. Yeah, it seems kind of like a counterinsurgency military operation. But, you know, I guess it's getting caught up on linguistics or whatever. Yeah, it is. So in the 1980s, you know, the U.S. is like, we've got now an arms embargo against Iran because we've decided... You know, they're terrorist supporters. We're not giving you any weapons. Ooh. But in 1985, Ronald Reagan's administrative officials, the high ups, were like, maybe we'll just secretly sell Iran a little bit of weapons uh, in order to bribe them into organizing the release of like seven Americans that are being held hostage by Hezbollah in Lebanon. Because you guys are buddies. You're buddies with Lebanon. You're, you like Hezbollah. Oh, this was the Iran Contra scandal. Yes, it was. And the weapons we're talking about here, it's 2004 tow missiles and 18 Hawk missiles. And as a nice little tie-in to our big gun starring Nicolas Cage episode all about the military industrial complex, uh, if you guessed that those Hawk and tow missiles were made by Raytheon, the U.S. company whose CEO made $23.3 million last year as his annual salary, you would be correct. And 11 former members of the U.S. Congress have been or are currently employed at Raytheon as well. Yeah. So... These officials use the money from the sales of their buddies' mega expensive missiles to fund right-wing Contra rebel groups in Nicaragua after Congress explicitly prohibited allocating any more money to them. And they do this all to fund this astroturfed anti-communist fake insurgency there against the Sandinistas. And this whole Iran-Contra thing, it isn't even super effective to secure the release of the prisoners. Like, Hezbollah kills two of the hostages. Only years later do they release the rest. And this whole thing comes to be known, yeah, like you said, as the Iran-Contra affair. And in 1987, Reagan actually has to do this whole televised address, uh, taking responsibility for the whole thing. And some people in the U.S. government were even, like, convicted of committing a crime when they did this. Yeah, I know it was, there was the whole Oliver North thing. Oh, maybe explain that. Um, well, Oliver North was, like, some sort of general who basically had to testify in front of Congress, and I believe he kind of, like, was the fall guy, but I have to, you know, but basically, now I think he's, like, a Fox News commentator. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, that would check out. Like, he, it's definitely, like, it, like, in the scheme of politics, should have been a really big fucking deal, but just, like somehow kind of wasn't because people just fucking loved Reagan and like yeah 
Yeah, I think that that happens a lot. I think things happen that you're like, this is really shocking. And everyone's like, eh, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, like, to me, it's just like, I think the whole, like, to me, it's just like, no military pro-peace everywhere. But like, if we're going to do a government, if you're going to do the thing and you're going to have, tri- you know, not tribunals, what do they call it? Uh, like committee hearings, like, yeah. for, you know how like they have for January 6th, they had one for uh, Iran-Contra. It's like, if you're going to do the thing, make it a big fucking deal right. if you're going to do the thing. They need to do a, par- a parade when they do it, I think. <laughs> they need some, some I don't, pizzazz. That's my thing where it's like, if you're going to do, Amer- if you're going to do America, then just do it. You know what they should actually do when there's a political scandal like that that goes to hearing, they should make John Travolta and Nicolas Cage star in a movie reenactment of it. And that would be super thrilling to the American public. And then we'd be like, oh, I get it. Like, I would watch that. Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. I mean, but I, I guess like some people love watching that stuff because they had like all the January 6th, like oh, committee yeah. stuff live. Um, <laughs> I think it's boring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, you know, sometimes people say, you know, funny stuff or not funny stuff but like interesting stuff it's like c-span core yeah you know sometimes it's like it's almost like asmr where they're just talking and talking and then someone says something and then they're talking talking. yes i don't know i take i don't know i don't know if it's that but yeah it just seems like iran contra could have been something that could have like been like reagan's watergate but wasn't yes but because people just really liked Ronald Reagan for some reason. Yeah, I mean, even in the 90s is when, when we did the War on Drugs episode last week, the 90s is when one of his chief advisors was like, yeah, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be black or hate the government, so we just made drugs illegal and pretended like all these people did a ton of drugs. And yeah, it's like, like, that should have been huge. It's so funny. I, I've been seeing so many, like, TikToks and, like, just, like, it basically seems like where everything went to shit, where it's, like, housing prices got more expensive, school got more expensive, more prisons, more, like, basically all the shit that, like, millennial and Gen Z have to deal with now is because of fucking Reagan. It's like all it, Reagan. Like, it, 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 I feel like at this point it's, like, like, mathematically proven. Oh, yeah, We're definitely. fucked because of him. Because of Reagan. I mean, we're not, like, we're not, like, existentially Revolutionary hope. Fucked. Revolutionary hope. Things can always get better. But it's just, like... That's the reason why things are so shitty right now. Yes, totally. So, okay, while the Iran-Contra thing is happening, that's in the middle, right, of the Iraq-Iran war. And remember, the U.S. has not officially declared itself at war with Iran, right? They're just kind of, like, sidled up next to Iraq during all of this. Yeah, it seems like, what is, I feel like there's, like, a proper term and like, when you take, like, a history class when they're, you're, like allied with someone but you're like or you know it's like a like a cold war maybe where it's just like we're we're not at war with like you know in the iraq iran war we're we're not at war with iran we don't have diplomatic relations with them but we are supporting iraq in their war against iran and then i would be like well you know in a court of law if someone gives someone the knife that they they're an accomplice they're an accomplice and also the united states gets a lot more directly involved yeah it's super directly involved here i'm like being more i'm being more like measured in my response but i'm just like damn yeah no so they end up the united states basically handles the naval and the air war side and iraq just handles the like ground war on the ground and at the time uh the iraq iran war was yeah one of the largest and longest conventional interstate wars that had occurred since the korean war ended in 1953 this thing cost like a trillion dollars it was the only war in modern times where chemical weapons were used on a massive scale. And at the end of it, basically nothing changed. 
Uh, but the effects of the war were super widespread and multifaceted, and it contributed to things like the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 and the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. And perhaps most harrowing, the month before the war came to the close, the United States murdered 290 Iranian civilians when a commercial aircraft, which was Iran Air Flight 655, was shot down by a U.S. missile cruiser while over the Strait of Hormuz in Iranian airspace. So it's an Iranian commercial plane, just like you're getting on Delta here in the U.S., you're flying in U.S. air zone, doing everything right. And yeah, this would have been what was happening in Iran, and a U.S. missile cruiser shot this airplane down. Ugh, my nightmare flying. Yeah, right? Everybody died, and the official story is that the U.S. thought it was an Iranian military jet, and everyone in Iran was like, you knew it wasn't a fucking military jet, you did this on purpose, you assholes. And the U.S. is like, no, it was rapidly descending. It wasn't on its typical route. It was in international airspace. However, on July 28th, 1988, the U.S. Navy released a report that refuted all these claims, saying the plane was on its normal flight path. It was traveling at a typical commercial speed. And it was, in fact, in Iranian airspace at the time. Oof. In the end, the United States agreed to pay $61.8 million in damages to the families of all of the innocent Iranian citizens that were on board. So this kind of gets us through the end of the war. The war comes to a close, uh, you know, a month later. And then we kind of hop along to 1992. The Iraq-Iran war is over. The U.S. government creates the Iran-Iraq Arms Non-Proliferation Act of 1992, which is a mouthful. And this is like, hey, just so you guys know, U.S. policy now, uh, we're officially declaring that... Um, we oppose any transfer of goods or technology to either of you guys when there's a reason to believe that that transfer of whatever might contribute to your acquisition of chemical, biological, nuclear, or advanced conventional weapons. So basically, the U.S. is like, okay, listen, Iraq and Iran, we think you might develop some advanced nuclear weapons. We don't like that. Never mind the fact that in 1990, the United States had 10,904 nuclear weapons alone just in the United States. It's actually terrifying to think about. Now, it's funny because my mom, who she is a baby boomer, she was talking about in school, they always had nuclear bomb drills to where you'd get under your desk. Which is not going to help you. It's she's not like, going to do I, anything. She's like, I realize this now. Yeah. and It's it, to make you not panic while you die. Yeah, and I was just like, wow, like, and, you know, now with, like, you know, again, people are saying, like, we should be worried about nuclear weapons again. I'm like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. That's, like, shit my mom was talking about. Like, we don't think about, like, it's it's funny, like, because it's, we just haven't thought about it for a while, you know, because it's not like, you know, we've had, like, prolonged period of, like, I don't know, I would say peace in the United States, but that's not true, you know, like, uh, of, like like a war like the like vietnam war or something like that or like world war Two, where it's like nu or uh sorry since the end of the soviet union we haven't thought about like nuclear weapons a lot but i'm just like holy fuck we could destroy the entire planet yes and not very many countries have any nuclear weapons we have a bunch russia has a bunch uh iraq iran had none at the time and at the time also the United States is still, even to this day, actually, not just at the time, we're the only country to have deployed nuclear weapons on another country. We're the only ones who've done that, right? And, you know, we aren't thinking about that, right? Instead, while all this is happening, we're thinking about the fact that maybe one day Iraq or Iran might be able to make one. Well, we have 10,904 at this time, and we have a track record of using them. So 
the U.S. starts sanctioning materials that could potentially be used to develop advanced weapons. Super hypocritical. These sanctions are expanded in 1995. They become like a complete oil and trade embargo against Iran in an effort to isolate Iran from the global stage. Some Congress people, like Senator Alphonse M. DeMoss, even suggested boycotting American trade with any foreign company who did business in Iran at all. And in 1996, this kind of came to fruition with this thing called the Iran and Libya Sanctions Act, which imposed an embargo against non-American companies that invested more than $20 million per year in Iran's oil and gas sectors. And yeah, this again, just super, super hypocritical, right? The United, the United States has you know, if not most, the second most nuclear weapons on the planet. We've been heavily involved in the political fields of all of these countries. So this is really just kind of an eye roll at this point, right? Well, it's just like, if you're really serious about countries, like, not having nuclear weapons, I feel like this is a really terrible strategy. To me, it's like, you'd be like, hey, we're going to get rid of ours. You don't have any either. We're good. Yes. Like, if you're going to do, like, diplomacy, I'm just like, to me, this is just like, ah, which makes me think that it's probably, like, somehow related to the military-industrial complex, you know? Like, probably. I don't know, but to me, it's just like, if you are very, if you are actually serious about the safety of the, like, let's just say you're just concerned about safety of the planet, just not nuking the planet, you know? Right. Because I feel like once someone sets off a nuclear bomb someone else is going to do it, then kaboom. Yeah. It's a whole fucked up thing. I'm, I, I'm like, you're, like, to me, like, nobody's doing a good job of, like, like actually doing diplomacy. They're not de-escalating shit. They're not de-escalating And we actually shit. see this coming up with Trump. Trump just escalated the fuck out of everything when we get into this. Um, but right now, we're not to Trump yet. We're kind of, you know, we're at 2000, 2001. And of course, in 2001, 9-11 happens. And this is major. This has a huge impact on U.S. foreign policy. The United States is like, okay, we need to go to war against someone. But the issue here, right, is that 9-11 wasn't an attack from one nation against ours. It was an attack from, like, an ideological subgroup who, ironically, were just opposing U.S. intervention in the Middle East. Still, though, on January 29th, 2002, during his State of the Union address, uh, U.S. President George W. Bush used the term Axis of evil. Do you remember that one? We heard oh, this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Axis of evil. It described Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. Wow. So all of a sudden, Iran and Iraq, you know, at, for a time, we were like, yeah, we're on the side of Iraq. Now we're like, no, you're both enemies and fuck North Korea too. And he says, Iran is aggressively pursuing weapons of mass destruction. They're exporting terror while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. And this is just fucking rich, right? Given that what we know about the leadership of Iran, we know how it ended up that way, right? From an American president to say an unelected few repress the Iranian people is just a joke. Because we know the last time Iran had uh, like a democratically elected leader at the mass level, uh, what did we do? We overthrew him. We put him in prison. Not to mention the fact that the Iraq, you know, kind of situation, they were our wartime buddy against Iran just a few years prior to this whole address. So what's really happening here is a strange triangular fixation on the idea potentially of weapons of mass destruction existing. Something we heard George W. Bush say time and time again when he was president. And there was this idea that anything we might do in Iraq or Iran or North Korea would be totally justified because there was maybe a chance they could one day make a nuclear weapon. All while we have 10,000 nuclear weapons already here. 
Well, yeah, that's okay. First of all, can I just say also Rich coming from George W. Bush, who technically wasn't elected by popular vote either. Yes, he was not. <laughs> that is a good point. He was not. He basically stole that election. Also, I'm just kind of like, for, you know, maybe I'm not big on, you know, maybe I'm just not up to date on game theory or whatever, but I'm just like, okay, even if these countries did have nuclear weapons, which is bad, wouldn't, if the United States had 10,000 more, wouldn't it just be mutually assured destruction? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. If you're thinking about like just safety of like mainland United States right. or like United States, uh, you know, uh, friendly areas. And I'm just like, well, if they did build one, you got enough nukes to nuke them back 9,999 more times. Right, totally. Not that, you know, I, but it's fucked up that I have Kenna to think that way. Kenna wants to nuke the whole world, no! is what she's saying. <laughs> Kenna wants everyone to get nuked. I well, love this. <laughs> Radical equality. It's like the equivalent of, like, a dude being like, I'm not a bigot. I hate everyone. Oh, I hate that. That's <laughs> the worst. <laughs> I hate that so much. It's like, so you're just a dick. Yeah. And a bigot still. <laughs> okay, so... This whole axis of evil idea, this, like, really stuck. Like, I remember hearing this all the time growing up. And it provided this justification in the 2000s for the U.S. to pretty much take any action they wanted in the Middle East. Especially in the context of the war on terror that came about after 9-11. So, on March 20th, 2009, the U.S. turns on our old buddy Saddam Hussein. And we invade Iraq, right? We do this with the claim that we're trying to destroy Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. Meanwhile, Iran is like, these fuckers are back here again in our region. And they end up backing local Shiite militias in Iraq who start participating in attacks against the U.S. forces there. Meanwhile, U.S. soldiers are in Iraq literally just like, we are hunting for weapons of mass destruction that definitely exist. And this one man, J.D. Maddox, was an intelligence officer for the Department of Energy and was assigned to the Iraq Survey Group, which was an American-led team searching for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. He was scheduled to interview an Iraqi prisoner who had been captured weeks before on suspicion of transporting stolen nuclear material. And in 2003, Secretary of State Colin Powell had stood in front of the U.N., right, and asserted that the U.S. knew Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. He said, every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. Remember this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And obviously we know now this was all bullshit. There was no, there were no solid sources or facts saying that there was anything related to weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But Maddox at the time doesn't know that yet. So he believes totally in the mission that they're doing. He believes Colin Powell. And he is like, I am going to find the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So he ends up in Abu, Abu Ghraib. Is that how it's pronounced? Uh, Abu Ghraib? Abu, Abu Ghraib? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whatever the correct pronunciation is, it's, you know, like a U.S. military prison in Iraq where they torture Iraqi people and do fucked up things to them in the name of, you know, yay, the United States. He ends up there and he is supposed to question this Iraqi prisoner. They're like, you got to come and question him. He's, he's, got the, he's got the weapons of mass destruction stuff. He's got the stuff they use to make the weapons. We know it. So Maddox goes in. He's like, yeah, I'm going to find it. He sits down with this guy and he's like, tell me. Tell me about the nuclear materials that you were transporting. And the guy is crying and he's like, 
I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I did not do anything. And he's like, oh, he's, you know, thinking like, oh, he's crying. He's really putting on a show. So he gets a little harsher and he's like, you know what I'm talking about. Tell me about the nuclear materials. And he's watching this Iraqi man just like lose it. Just like, I literally do not know what you were talking about. Please don't kill me. Like, please, I don't know what's happening. And he says in this moment, he realizes something. And he just looks at the guy next to him and he's like, he's not supposed to be here. And in the moment, the guy's like, okay, like the guy who's also in the U.S. military with him, he's like, okay, so this man's innocent. And Maddox is like, no, no, like nobody is supposed to be here. This is all bullshit. He just sees it in this man's face. And he ends up writing this piece about this later. And he says, the Iraqi weapons of mass destruction were no more than a bit of improvised sham, a con man's counterfeit goods. In the process, I had stumbled into one of the darkest places in wartime Iraq and into the most revealing truth of the conflict. Nobody belonged there. Yeah, I mean, to me, at the time, it just seemed like everyone, the way that uh, the Bush administration and the media, like, acted, it made most people think that Iraq did 9-11. Yes. And like, they, that I think was, they did it on purpose, that confusion, where you don't quite know what's happening. Where it's like, we know it was uh, people from... Uh, other you know many different countries many different countries like but the government of iraq iraq was not right um but so many but people really conflated it i think to this day a lot of people still think that uh iraq orchestrated 9-11 and that's why we went into iraq but then you're like well why did we go in to Afghanistan, and people were like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, people also think it was Afghanistan. Yeah. Or they're just like, oh, that was Osama bin Laden. And you're just like, but... The- but he wasn't Afghanistan. He wasn't Afghani, I don't even think. Uh, I was think- he? No, no, no. Because he was the he's son Saudi- of the... He's, I believe he's... This is like a whole... Yeah, we, we did have to an do an Iraq this, war actually. episode, but I believe... Uh, or, like, I believe he is not from i believe he's saudi arabian i think he's saudi arabian also i know that he was the son of a rich guy and i remember that um he was recruited into the u.s cia back to training but, camps because they wanted a rich guy there they were like we want a prince and they're like well no prince is going to come out here so they got osama bin laden and yeah but, but yeah not not afghani but i think that like when when you start asking people about the era 2001 iraq uh, afghanistan war People uh, are re- like really conflate what ha- or like are con- a little bit confused as what happened, but um, uh, that it, to me that was the main justification for Bush to I don't know like to me it seems like you know we could do a whole episode like settle some daddy grudges because <laughs> <laughs> because HW yes yes the junior the, and the senior George Bush like when junior had the Bush first was... Iraq war first yes. Gulf war they, they, they called it the Gulf war right 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 um and then you know Dick Cheney had some really heavy ties with Halliburton yes and the military industrial com um complex so it kind of seemed like and it also just seemed like you know at the time People were, it like if you weren't alive during that, like weren't an a, like a teenager or an adult at the time. It's so hard to describe like the fervor that people had. Oh yeah, and that's what resulted in a lot of people of color, in particular, uh, people who were Muslim, people who were Sikh, 
being violently attacked on the streets. Yeah. Hate crimes went up. I mean, people were very violently, aggressively confused and wanted some sort of recourse. And so I think that's like a little bit, you know, the Bush administration was like, this is perfect. Yeah, people they're like, want nobody understands the people, Middle East. We can say whatever. Yeah, people, like, people will not be, like, will not come out against the war, even though some of the biggest protests ever were against the Iraq war. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember um, I, went, I went protesting every week. Yeah, like... And I think that, like, it was just, like, yeah, it was just such a, yeah, like, that's why I'm just, like, it's not surprising that they could use that to go into Iraq, even though we were just, like, what? But you were were friends before, but, you know, the Gulf, there's a a lot of history. Basically, what ended up happening is, yeah, the United States relied on the ambiguity of their intentions, as well as the American public's general lack of knowledge about like relationships between different countries and different locations in the Middle East to kind of throw every single justification at any sort of invasion in the Middle East towards any country they had been wanting to get into for a long time after 9-11. Yeah, Anything I'm, that happened, they were like, oh yeah, now we can go into this Middle Eastern country. Now we can go into this Middle Eastern country. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, too, like with Iraq, also a major oil producing yeah. country. It's just like, yeah, you're just like, wow. Like there's, there's a lot of patterns going on here with, uh, like basically big business like really fucking up other countries. Yeah, and the United States government and military helping. So this guy Maddox who was in the military who was the one who was in Iraq and was just like, holy shit, like I don't think there's any weapons of mass destruction in any of these places and I don't think we should be here. He, talking about that moment where he was looking at that man, he says, in that moment it became clear to me that the administration's public narrative of the war was exactly what drove us to that dark place the time-tested tropes of war for freedom and war for liberation had been used masterfully and had been enabled by false claims of the hussein regime's involvement with al-qaeda which is how george w bush says it i think it's actually al-qaeda i'm sorry we were fighting in a fantasy and our leaders knew it even while we were there yet we persisted and despite all this, obviously, in 2009, Saddam Hussein was executed. And looking back on this involvement, a 2019 U.S. Army study on the war concluded that the conflict only served one thing, which was to embolden and give power to the Iranian government. Interesting. Yes. So Accidentally, of course. So the Iraq war was kind of a proxy war with Iran. Well, it was kind of... Like, they were upset that they thought Saddam Hussein was stepping up too much and getting a little too aggro. Saddam Hussein had also started reportedly using chemical weapons on his own people. They were like, this guy's kind of a loose cannon. We need to be able to control him. We need to control Iraq. We need to also, like, just regain some sort of power that we lost in the Middle East in general when we lost control over the Iranian Shah. Um, Iran was just like, we literally fucking hate the United States. So they sent people into Iraq to help fight, you know, the American soldiers. Gotcha. But the reason why it ended up really emboldening Iran is because the Ayatollah there is like, look, the United States gets involved in all of our business. They don't give a fuck about us. They're imperialist warlords. They just want to come in our countries, ruin everything, explode everything, kill us all. And then what does the United States do? They go to the one country next door to Iran. They explode everything without a reason. They want to try to kill everybody. They do exactly what the Ayatollah had been saying. So everybody looking is like, holy shit, the Ayatollah is right. Like the United States is a loose cannon. They're terrifying. And that kind of emboldened the Iranian government because people looked at them and they, they weren't lying about the United States. They were telling the truth. And by, you know, May of 2006, like before Saddam Hussein was 
executed, the Iranian president sat George W. Bush an 18-page letter. And in this letter, he was seeking to ease the U.S.-Iran nuclear tensions. And the Iranian president honestly just like roasted the United States pretty hard in the letter. And it's pretty powerful. So I want to just read like an excerpt from it. 18 pages. I'm not going to read it all, obviously. But he's like, can one be a follower of Jesus Christ, the great messenger of God, feel obliged to respect human rights, present liberalism as a civilization model, announce one's opposition to the proliferation of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction, make war on terror his slogan, and finally work towards the establishment of a unified international community, a community which Christ and the virtues of the earth will one day govern, but at the same time have countries attacked." the lives, reputations, and possessions of people destroyed and on the slight chance of the presence of a few criminals in a village, a city, or a convoy, for example. The entire village, the entire city, the entire convoy set ablaze. Or because of the possibility of the existence of weapons of mass destruction in one country, it is occupied, around 100,000 people killed, its water sources, agriculture, and industry destroyed, close to 180,000 foreign troops put on the ground, sanctity of private homes of citizens broken, and the country pushed back perhaps 50 years. At what price? Hundreds of billions of dollars spent from the treasury of one country and certain other countries and tens of thousands of young men and women as occupation troops put in harm's way, taken away from family and loved ones, their hands stained with the blood of others, subjected to so much psychological pressure that every day some commit suicide and those returning home suffer depression, become sickly and grapple with all sorts of ailments, while some are killed and their bodies handed to their families on the pretext of the existence of weapons of mass destruction. This great tragedy came to engulf both the peoples of the occupied and the occupying country. Later, it was revealed that no weapons of mass destruction existed to begin with. There are prisoners in Guantanamo Bay that have not been tried, have no legal representation, their families cannot see them, and are obviously kept in a strange land outside of their own country. There is no international monitoring of the conditions and fate. No one knows whether they are prisoners, prisoners of war, accused, or criminals. Don't Latin Americans have the right to ask why their elected governments are being opposed and coup leaders supported, or why they must constantly be threatened and live in fear? So these are just some excerpts from this letter, but he did a really good job of critiquing U.S. imperialism. It's shit that you're like, damn, who could argue with this? He went on to say that for many years, the U.S. was, yeah, in alliance with Saddam Hussein and Iraq. It was just this really scathing critique of U.S. Uh, actions abroad, and in response that year to all of this stuff that just really makes a lot of sense and is all of the reasons why the United States should not be this involved in other countries' affairs, uh, rather than listening, the United States Congress doubled down on imperialism abroad and passed a law to direct $10 million towards the support of what it called pro-democracy groups that opposed the Iranian government. And again, this is ironic considering uh, that the United States government overthrew the last democratically elected leader there pro-democracy groups, so just very buzzword hypocritical. So by 2018, you know, that's kind of when we get to Donald Trump. And remember how he said, like, Donald Trump just made everything worse? Like, he had no de-escalation techniques at all under his belt? And, like, he's he's kind of going into this thinking, like, art of the deal. Like, I'm going to mount this huge sanctions campaign, and that's going to put all this pressure on Iran. And then they're just going to, like, stop trying to make weapons. And lots of people are like, uh, this is a bad idea and this is not going to work at all. And he's like, no, 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 it's cool. I know what I'm doing. And he uh, sets all these sanctions out, does this really aggressive campaign. And Iran is like, cool, fuck you. You know what we're going to do? We're actually going to boost our uranium enrichment in defiance of you. 
So he did the opposite thing that he was trying to do, right? He escalated everything. And a year later, Trump designates this Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is a branch of the Iranian army, as a foreign terrorist organization, which is wild because it's the first time the United States has ever designated just some part of another country's government as a foreign terrorist organization, FTO. And a week later, it's revealed on Twitter that the Israeli prime minister just personally asked Trump to do this, and that's why he did it. So... Israel is always this kind of like proxy presence of the West in the Middle East, right? And experts anticipate, you know, that this action is just going to boost the popularity of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, both in Iran, but also abroad. And they're kind of right. So in 2019, there's this weird military issue happening in the Strait of Hormuz. On, and this is, remember, I think this is where the plane was shot down, too. Mm. So a lot of action happens here. And on June 13th, two oil tankers are attacked near the strait about a month after four commercial ships are damaged in the same area. And the United States is like, this was Iran. We're blaming Iran for the attacks. And Trump calls Iran a nation of terror. And the United States announces the deployment of 1,000 additional troops in the Middle East in response to this. And the IRGC, that Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, shoots down a U.S. surveillance drone two days later. And the United States again blames Iran for the attacks on the oil tankers in the region in the following months and tries to seize an Iranian vessel sailing near the British territory of Gibraltar. On December 29, 2019, the United States launched airstrikes in Iraq and Syria, killing 25 men and wounding 55 more. And these airstrikes were just like a unilateral U.S. kind of thing. They didn't have approval. They didn't have involvement of any other kind of body globally. And Iraq and Iran were like, Iran, sorry, were like, what the fuck? This is so bad. And they condemned the airstrike attacks. And two days later, on December 31st, widespread protests broke out at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, where Iraqi demonstrators and Iran-backed militias attempted to seize the embassy in retaliation for the airstrikes like that had happened. And protesters demanded that the U.S. withdraw troops from Iraq, and they were all chanting, death to America. Um, which, you know, at this point, how do you not understand their point, right? So a few days later, on January 3rd, the U.S. launched a drone strike in Baghdad, killing the commander of the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, who was Commander Soleimani. And Soleimani was considered the second highest leader up in Iran at the time under the Ayatollah. And in addition, an Iraqi military leader was killed too, along with seven other Iraqi and Iranian civilians. So Iran promises revenge and is like, we are not going to commit to any restrictions on any nuclear agreements anymore. Like, you guys are a loose cannon. We're going to do what we need to do to protect ourselves. And the Iranian government, on high alert for all incoming U.S. attacks, accidentally shoots down a Ukrainian passenger airplane because of this. Oh, I remember this. Yes, in 2020, I think. Yeah, the very beginning of 2020. So, in response, Iran ramps up its defense. They're like, this is fucked. The U.S. attempts to hold Iran accountable to this deal, but it was like a deal that the United States had already abandoned our part in. So we violated the terms of the agreement ourselves. So like, how could Iran be held to it? And everybody on the global stage was like, no, you guys broke the agreement. Like, you can't make them answer to it. And um, Trump was like, okay, fine. Like, we're just going to try to like re-up on sanctions again. Like, back when they broke it, you know, that's what he was doing. So they were like, you... Like, Trump re-upping on the sanctions nullified this agreement, basically. So in May of 2020, Iranian oil tankers go to Venezuela amidst an oil shortage um, to supply them with oil. 
And the U.S. at this point has sanctions on both countries. We got sanctions all over the place. And this, of course, pisses the White House off. And they sanction five Iranian ships' uh, captains who were involved in the delivery. So by October, the U.S. Trump administration is trying to extend a decade-long U.N. arms embargo on Iran. It's about set to expire. But the U.N. is not going along with this. The U.N. is like, look. Nobody in the rest of the world is supporting whatever the fuck you're trying to do to Iran. Like, this is erratic, this is unpredictable, you're escalating their behavior, they're becoming more defensive, and therefore more, you know, of a threat to all of us. What are you doing? So Donald Trump's kind of negotiating skills were real bad, real bad, really, really, really bad. Uh, So Trump responds in October, November, and December by just, like, chaotically creating more sanctions, even though that has done nothing. And when people are like, what the fuck are you doing? Donald Trump's like, well, Iran intervened in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. What? Yes, this is what they said. And to be fair, we did bring charges against two Iranian people for attempting to meddle in our election. But it was try- them trying to get more votes for Donald Trump. What? And it was just two people. Um... So, and they just pretended basically to be proud boys and were like, we're going to hurt you unless you vote for Donald Trump. So, again, two uh, people, meanwhile, our entire CIA actually overthrew their entire government. So, I don't really know how this, whatever. It doesn't super stick, obviously. So, then Trump is like, uh, they also have chemical weapons. But remember, the U.S. condoned Iraq's use of chemical weapons on Iranian people during the Iraq-Iran war. And then they're like, well, there were human rights abuses on protesters in 2019, which again, you know, yeah, probably, but rich coming from the country where police officers hunt and kill black men in the streets regularly and also just murder political opponents like Fred Hampton from the Black Panther Party whenever it's convenient. So just a lot of hypocrisy, not making a lot of sense, and he's kind of like grasping at straws here. And that kind of leads us to today. So... Basically, the U.S. is frantic about whether or not Iran has nuclear capabilities. Iran is like, fuck you, we're doing what we want on that front. They still don't have a singular, single nuclear weapon, but the United States now has 31,255 to our name. Well, <laughs> yeah. How did it increase so much? It increased three times. Um, there's a conservative theocratic leadership in Iran in place, but again, it's only in place because the United States meddled in the nation's democratic elections, like in the 19, what, 50s. And now, following the alleged Iranian state, you know, murder of a young girl named Masa Aminat, thousands of Iranian women are currently taking to the streets to protest their government. The government that we in the U.S. created through decades of abysmal foreign policy and outright military coups. Meanwhile, Joe Biden calls for Iran to end the violence against its own citizens, simply exercising their fundamental rights. And Iran's president says Joe Biden is inciting chaos, terror, and destruction and should be reminded the eternal words of the founder of the Islamic Republic, who called America the Great Satan, which the founder of the Islamic Republic is the Ayatollah who rose to power after engaging in conflict with the U.S.-backed puppet Shah for 14 years. So reports now say um, that at least 240 protesters in Iran have been killed, including 32 minors, and over 8,000 people have been arrested in 111 cities and towns across Iran during these, you know, recent wave of protests. And as an American, I try really hard not to talk about what happens in other countries um, if I didn't see it myself, because I feel like we receive information through the lens of U.S. propaganda and media distortion, and I just don't feel like I'm qualified to talk about what's happening anywhere in the United States outside of the United States, especially while it's occurring. Like, very often we have to wait for the dust to settle and for the CIA's documents to be declassified because who knows what we were fucking doing there. 
I'm mostly, I just think it's not my job to have an opinion on like what's best for Iranian people, right? That's up to Iranian people to decide. And Iran is a vast place with many different voices wanting different things. And the only thing I'm confident about is that Americans probably shouldn't get an opinion on what happens in Iran, and we should probably stay the fuck out of what happens in other countries. So while some Islamic socialists critique the Tudez party, remember that party, they had the Communist Party going back forever. Mm-hmm. They kind of critique the party's history of secularism and alignment with the USSR. The party does still remain active in Iran, fighting for what they call peace, independence, democracy, social justice, and socialism. And in regards to the protest on September 30th, 2022, they released a statement that said, the widespread popular protests in recent days are a clear culmination and display of more than four decades of people's anger, disgust, and hatred of the ruling criminal regime, a regime whose anti-people, reactionary, and plundering policies have meant corruption, unemployment, high prices, repression, and severe poverty and deprivation in society, especially for women and young people. And, you know, again, I'm not qualified to know if that is a correct or nuanced take on what's happening in Iran. Like, I don't know. I'm not super familiar with what's going on there, and again, Uh, There's no way to say if the United States is currently meddling there. But what stands out to me about their perspective is that it's difficult to hear this explanation of events without fixating on the four decades that they mentioned. Because the four decades traces back directly to the 1979 revolution in Iran. That same revolution that overthrew the U.S.-backed Shah. And you can't listen to that and, and not think about the U.S.'s culpability in whatever is happening in Iran right now today. We have always chosen our best financial interests and upholding capitalism over the health, safety, and well-being of other people. And that's exactly what we did in Iran 40 years ago. So anyway, that's the episode on U.S. intervention in Iran. Wow. What do you think? Do you have thoughts? Yeah, it seems like uh, America really fucked this up. Yes. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying, like... I, like, I totally agree. Like, I can't, I'm not super familiar with Iran either. You know, growing up in America in the 90s, Y2K, you, you just see what's on TV here. So it's hard to, like, get, I mean, and we just, we just know American stuff. (laughs) Yes. But I, I would say, like, from an American perspective, it's like, if the United, like, states wants to foster peace like you should probably end sanctions because it's only hurting working class people yes, in iran that's like, true sanctions like i was reading somewhere that sanctions for any country only hurt the working and class basically because if you're super rich it doesn't matter which country you're from you're going to be able to get luxury goods you're going to be able to do whatever you want like even the case of North Korea, where it's just like there's been sanctions on North Korea for a lot, you know, since the Korean War, yet their leaders can still have like luxury goods and movies and stuff like that, which couldn't get exported to regular working class people. So it's just like sanctions are are violent. They hurt people, you know, I'm sure there's U.S. exports like you know, medicine or something that would be, like, beneficial to just the every, you know, we have solidarity with, like, all the working class people. Right. You know, it's just, like, you got, you know, first, like, sanctions are bad. If you want to foster peace, get rid of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Get rid of your massive industrial complex. Like, I think that's the first thing to bring on the table. And, you know, treating other countries with 
respect and maybe being like, yeah, we fucked up. We've been fucking up. Right. And respecting other countries' sovereignty. And, you know, a lot of what has to do, too, is, like, I think just how deep Christian fundamentalism has gone into uh, the government here. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very, very Islamophobic. Like, you, like, with George Bush, you know, that, you know, after, and, and, like, especially with, like, you know, Christian fundamentalists in the government now. And, like, you know, it's, it's just, like, it's terrible. Right. I do think it's interesting that in the West we tend to critique religions in government and other places, but here we fight, we, people try to, to fight for more of it to and be it, included. Yeah, like the the hateful, spiteful version of Christianity. The Christo-fascism. Yeah, like yeah, that's sure. like definitely, but it's just like, yeah, it's just like sanctions don't work. No one wants nukes. No one needs this huge, you know, military industrial complex. And like... Get the CIA out of other people's yeah, countries. And Get then, the CIA and the military out of there. And then, you know, or like foster a relationship with everybody around the world of like peace and communication and interest in cultures and it's just like you know maybe that seems a little too pollyanna it doesn't though because other countries don't have constant international conflict with everybody else that's something we have on account i think as an american like you know, it sucks that, like, we could never just, like, easily just check out Iran. Maybe we could, you know. It'd be hard. It would be hard. It would be hard. When I was in college, I had a friend who was from Croatia, and I remember she was like, oh, you have to come to Croatia. Like, you'll love it. Like, my sister is, you know, a travel agent. She can get us free tickets. So she was trying to book the tickets with her sister for us to go to Croatia, and her sister was like, isn't your friend American? And she was like, yeah. And she's like, like three American tourists just got beheaded here. Like Croatia doesn't want Americans here right now. And you know, that's a Euro- that's a European country. Granted, this was many, many years ago and there was like, you know, a civil war that had recently occurred there. But it's totally true. It does a disservice to all of us because it's like, yeah, as an American, uh, people don't fucking want me places. And I understand Not to be why. like, we should just be friends with like Iran so I can go travel there. <laughs> But no, it's no, like, I like this. We're gonna we're gonna do the the goopification of foreign policy. Like I can't even go on vacation there. Oh my god! I just <laughs> you know it's just like it, it's just like it's so strange that we are just can't you know it's just like we like America has so much beef with so many places that like I feel like us as like working class people probably have more in common with just the working class people of all countries we have similarities with and you know I don't know I'm interested to just know yeah also it's just it's really it's really I don't know like horrifying I guess to imagine yourself as a symbol of oppression to other people like just hearing an American accent just seeing like a white face and like westernized clothes it's like oh yeah you have so much fucking trauma from what my country has done to you like I appear to be a tool of violence and genocide when I am in proximity to you and that can be true for basically everywhere in the world except for some parts of Europe, you know? And that's pretty wild. That just, like, shows you how violent and imperialistic, like, the United States truly is. Like, we are symbols, almost, of oppression when we go places. And you get why people don't like Americans, why people hate the U.S. government, you know? It's just, you know, it, it, it makes sense when you think about also U.S. military invention and CIA intervention in 
um, Iran in particular, also to think back about just the history of like everyone doing this to Iran. So it's like this multifaceted thing where it's like the United States and our hands in everybody else's pot. And then it's like the whole world and all their hands in Iran. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there's a lot of nuanced things going on where it's just like, I feel like governments are doing things, you know, that are not in the people's best interests. And it's like, it's, it's like, it just, for me, it's just like, like if if the if the US is really saying that they just want peace and freedom they're not doing a good job at it. No. No. I don't even think they say they want that anymore though. I think they say they want power. Yeah, and it's just like But they do call things peacekeeping missions, which is very confusing. They send soldiers places and then say it's on a peacekeeping mission. Yeah, cuz I think that yeah, it's just like I think everyone I think Everyone wants everyone to live nice, peaceful, chill lives. Yes. And yeah. Kenna wants to nuke the whole world. Because <laughs> no! she's not a bigot. She hates everyone equally. <laughs> no! No, 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 no. Just kidding. <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to add to the episode in Iran? Uh, I thought that was all interesting information. I didn't know a lot of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, I didn't know a lot of it either. We researched. We learned together. Yeah. Um, okay. That's the episode. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $2 a month, you can access two bonus episodes monthly. And also you can chat with us about what's on your mind and give us uh, recommendations for show topics. Ooh. But if you don't want to do that, that is totally fine. We're just happy you're here. <laughs>